to be are ought to be. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Bell Myers. To be are ought to be. By Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. Everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane asylums, no cripples, no poverty, no wars. All diseases were conquered. So was old age. Death, barring accidents, was an adventure for volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls. One bright morning in the Chicago Lying-In Hospital, a man named Edward K. Welling, Jr., waited for his wife to give birth. He was the only man waiting. Not many people were born a day anymore. Welling was 56, a mere stripling in a population whose average age was 129. X-rays had revealed that his wife was going to have triplets. The children would be his first. Young Welling was hunched in his chair, his head in his hand. He was so rumpled, so still and colorless, as to be virtually invisible. His camouflage was perfect, since the waiting room had a disorderly and demoralized air, too. Chairs and ashtrays had been moved away from the walls. The floor was paved with spattered dropcloths. The room was being redecorated. It was being redecorated as a memorial to a man who had volunteered to die. A sardonic old man, about two hundred years old, sat on a stepladder, painting a mural he did not like. Back in the days when people aged visibly, his age would have been guessed at thirty-five or so. Aging had touched him that much before the cure for aging was found. The mural he was working on depicted a very neat garden. Men and women in white, doctors and nurses, turned the soil, planted seedlings, sprayed bugs, spread fertilizer. Men and women in purple uniforms pulled up weeds, cut down plants that were old and sickly, raked leaves, carried refuse to trash burners. Never, 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 not even in medieval Holland or old Japan, had a garden been more formal, better tended. Every plant had all the loam, light, water, air, and nourishment it could use. A hospital orderly came down the corridor singing under his breath a popular song. If you don't like my kisses, honey, here's what I will do. I'll go see a girl in purple, kiss his sad world to loo. If you don't want my loving, why should I take up all this space? I'll get off this old planet, let them sweet baby have my place. The orderly looked up at the mural and the muralist, Looks so real, he said. I can practically imagine I'm standing in the middle of it. What makes you think you're not in it, said the painter. He gave a satiric smile. It's called the happy garden of life, you know. That's good old Dr. It, said the orderly. He was referring to one of the male figures in white, whose head was a portrait of Dr. Benjamin Hitz, the hospital's chief obstetrician. Hitz was a blindingly handsome man. Lots of faces still to fill in, 
said the orderly. He meant that the faces of many of the figures in the mural were still blank. All the blanks were to be filled in with portraits of important people, on either the hospital staff or from the Chicago office of the Federal Bureau of Termination. Must be nice to be able to make pictures that look like something, said the orderly. The painter's face curdled with scorn. You think I'm proud of this daub, he said. You think this is my idea of what life really looks like? What's your idea of what life looks like, said the orderly. The painter gestured at a foul drop cloth. There's a good picture of it, he said. Frame that. You'll have a picture a damn sight more honest than this one. You're a gloomy old duck, aren't you? said the orderly. Is that a crime? said the painter. The orderly shrugged. If you don't like it here, Grandpa, he said, and he finished the thought with the trick telephone number that people who don't want to live anymore were supposed to call. The zero in the telephone number he pronounced ought. The number was to be our ought to be. It was the telephone number of an institution whose fanciful sobriquets included Automat, Birdland, Cannery, Catbox, Delouser, Easy Go, Goodbye Mother, Happy Hooligan, <laughs> Kiss Me Quick, Lucky Pierre, Sheep Dip, Wearing Blender, Weep No More, and Why Worry. To be or not to be was the telephone number of the municipal gas chambers of the Federal Bureau of Termination. The painter thumbed his nose at the orderly. When I decide it's time to go, he said, it won't be at the sheep dip. A do-it-yourselfer, eh? said the orderly. Messy business, Grandpa. Why don't you have a little consideration for the people who have to clean up after you? The painter expressed, with an obscenity, his lack of concern for the tribulations of his survivors. The world could do with a good deal more mess, if you ask me, he said. The orderly laughed and moved on. Wailing, the waiting father, mumbled something about, without raising his head. Then he fell silent again. A coarse, formidable woman strode into the waiting room on spike heels. Her shoes, stockings, trench coat, bag, and overseas cap were all purple. The purple the painter called the color of grapes on Judgment Day. The medallion on her purple musette bag was the seal of the service division of the Federal Bureau of Termination, an eagle perched on a turnstile. The woman had a lot of facial hair, an unmistakable mustache, in fact. A curious thing about gas chamber hostesses was that, no matter how lovely and feminine they were when they were recruited, they all sprouted mustaches within five years or so. "'Is this where I'm supposed to come?' she said to the painter. "'A lot would depend on what your business was,' he said. "'You aren't about to have a baby, are you?' They told me I was supposed to pose for some picture, she said. My name's Leora Duncan. She waited. And you dunk people, he said. What? Skip it, he said. That sure is a beautiful picture, she says. Looks just like heaven or something. Or something, said the painter. He took a list of names from his smock pocket. Duncan, 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 he said, scanning the list. Yep, there you are. You're entitled to be immortalized. See your faceless body here you'd like me to stick your head on? I've got a few choice ones left. She studied the mural bleakly. Gee, she said. They're all the same to me. I, I don't know anything about art. <laughs> Body's a body, eh? He said. All righty, as a master of fine art, I recommend this body here. 
he indicated a faceless figure of a woman who was carrying dried stalks to a trash burner. Well, said Leora Duncan, well, that's more the disposal people, isn't it? I mean, I'm in service. I don't do any disposing. The painter clapped his hands in mock delight. Well, you say you don't know anything about art, and then you prove the next breath that you know more about it than I do. <laughs> of course, the sheave carrier's wrong for a hostess, a snipper, a pruner. That's more your line. He pointed to a figure in purple who was sawing a dead branch from an apple tree. How about her? He said. You like her at all? Gosh, she said, and she blushed and became humble. Well, that, uh, that puts me right next to Dr. Hitz. That upsets you, he said. Oh, good gravy, no, she said. It's just, uh, just such an honor. Oh, you admire him, eh, he said. Who doesn't admire him, she said, worshipping the portrait of Hitz. It was the portrait of a tanned, white-haired, omnipotent Zeus, 240 years old. Who doesn't admire him, she said again. He was responsible for setting up the very first gas chamber in Chicago. Nothing would please me more, said the painter, than to put you next to him for all time. Sawing off a limb, that strikes you as appropriate? Oh, that is kind of like what I do, she said. She was demure about what she did. What she did was make people comfortable while she killed them. And while Leora Duncan was posing for her portrait, into the waiting room bounded Dr. Hitz himself. He was seven feet tall, and he boomed with importance, accomplishments, and the joy of living. Well, Miss Duncan, Miss Duncan, he said, and he made a joke. <laughs> what are you doing here, he said. This isn't where the people leave, this is where they come in. <laughs> We're going to be in the same picture together, she said shyly. Good, said Dr. Hitz heartily. And say, isn't that some picture? I sure am honored to be in it with you, she said. Let me tell you, he said. I'm honored to be in it with you. Without women like you, this wonderful world we've got wouldn't be possible. He saluted her and moved towards the door that led to the delivery rooms. Guess what was just born, he said. I can't, she said. Triplets, triplets, he said. Triplets, she said. She was exclaiming over the legal implications of triplets. The law said that no newborn child could survive unless the parents of the child could find someone who would volunteer to die. Triplets, if they were all to live, called for three volunteers. Well, do the parents have three volunteers? said Leora Duncan. Last I heard, said Dr. Hitz, they had one, and were trying to scrape the other two up. I don't think they made it, she said. Nobody made three appointments with us. Nothing but singles going through today, unless somebody called in after I left. What's the name? Welling, said the waiting father, sitting up, red-eyed and frowsy. Edward K. Welling, Jr. is the name of the happy father-to-be. He raised his right hand, looked at a spot on the wall, gave a hoarsely wrecked chuckle. <laughs> Present, he said. Oh, Dr. Welling, said Dr. Hitz. I didn't see you. The invisible man said Welling. They just phoned me that your triplets have been born, said Dr. Hitz. They're all fine. So is the mother. I'm on my way to see them now. Hooray, said Welling emptily. You don't sound very happy, said Dr. Hitz. What man in my shoes wouldn't be happy, said Welling. 
He gestured with his hands to symbolize carefree simplicity. All I have to do is pick out which one of the triplets is going to live and then deliver my maternal grandfather to the happy hooligan and come back here with a receipt. Dr. Hitz became rather severe with Welling. He towered over him. You don't believe in population control, Mr. Welling, he said. I think it's perfectly keen, said Welling, said Welling tautly. Would you like to go back to the good old days when the population of the Earth was 20 billion, about to become 40 billion, then 8 billion, and 160 billion? Do you know what a druplet is, Mr. Welling, said Dr. Hitz. Nope, said Welling sulkily. A druplet, Mr. Welling, is one of the little knobs, one of the little pulpy grains of a blackberry, said Dr. Hitz. Without population control, human beings would now be packed on the surface of this old planet like druplets of a blackberry. Think of it. Welling continued to stare at the same spot on the wall. In the year 2000, said Dr. Hitz, before scientists stepped in and laid down the law, there wasn't even enough drinking water to go around and nothing to eat but seaweed. And still people insisted on their right to reproduce like jackrabbits and their right, if possible, to live forever. I want those kids, said Welling quietly. I want all three of them. Of course you do, said Dr. Hitz. It's only human. I don't want my grandfather to die, either, said Welling. Well, nobody's really happy about taking a close relative to the cat box, said Dr. Hitz gently, sympathetically. I wish people wouldn't call it that said Leora Duncan. What? said Dr. Hitz. I wish people wouldn't call it the cat box and things like that, she said. It gives people the wrong impression. You're absolutely right, said Dr. Hitz. Forgive me. He corrected himself, gave the municipal gas chambers their official title, a title no one ever used in conversation. I should have said ethical suicide studios, he said. Well, it sounds so much better said Leona Duncan. This child of yours, whichever one you decide to keep, Mr. Welling, said Dr. Hitz, he or she is going to live in a happy, roomy, clean, rich planet thanks to population control. In a garden like that mural there, he shook his head. Two centuries ago, when I was a young man, it was a hell that nobody thought could last another twenty years. Now, centuries of peace and plenty stretch before us as far as the imagination cares to travel, he smiled luminously. The smile faded as he saw that Welling had just drawn a revolver. Welling shot Dr. Hitz dead. There's room for one. Great big one, he said. Then he shot Leora Duncan. It's only death, he said to her as she fell. There. Room for two. Then he shot himself, making room for all three of his children. Nobody came running. Nobody seemingly heard the shots. The painter sat on the top of his stepladder, looking down reflectively on the sorry scene. The painter pondered the mournful puzzle of life, demanding to be born, and once born, demanding to be fruitful, to multiply and to live as long as possible, to do all that on a very small planet that would have to last forever. All the answers that the painter could think of were grim. 
even grimmer surely than a catbox, a happy hooligan, an easy go. He thought of war, he thought of plague, he thought of starvation. He knew that he would never paint again. He let his paintbrush fall to the drop claws below, and then he decided he'd had about enough of life in the happy garden of life, too, and he came slowly down from the ladder. He took Welling's pistol, really intending to shoot himself. But he didn't have the nerve. And then he saw the telephone booth in the corner of the room. He went to it and dialed the well-remembered number. To be our ought to be. Federal Bureau of Termination, said the very warm voice of a hostess. How soon could I get an appointment? he asked, speaking very carefully. We could probably fit you in late this afternoon, sir, she said. Might even be earlier if we get a cancellation. All right, said the painter. Fit me in, if you please. He gave his name, spelling it out. Thank you, sir, said the hostess. Your city thanks you, your country thanks you, your planet thanks you. But the deepest thanks of all is from future generations. End of To Be Are Ought To Be by Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. Recording by Bruce Bellmyers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Answer by H. Beam Piper Read by Nicodemus For a moment, after the screen door snapped and wakened him, Lee Richardson sat breathless and motionless, his eyes still closed, trying desperately to cling to the dream and print it upon his conscious memory before it faded. "'Are you there, Lee?' he heard Alexis Pitoff's voice. "'Yes, I'm here. What time is it?' he asked, and then added, "'I fell asleep. I was dreaming.' It was all right. He was going to be able to remember. He could still see the slim woman with the graying blonde hair playing with the little dachshund among the new-fallen leaves on the lawn. He was glad they'd both been in this dream together. These dream glimpses were all he'd had for the last fifteen years, and they were too precious to lose. He opened his eyes. The Russian was sitting just outside the light from the open door of the bungalow, lighting a cigarette. For a moment he could see the blocky, high-cheeked face, now pouched and wrinkled, and then the flame went out and there was only the red coal glowing in the darkness. He closed his eyes again, and the dream picture came back to him, the woman catching the little dog and raising her head as though to speak to him. Plenty of time yet, Pitov was speaking German instead of Spanish, as they always did between themselves. They're still counting down from minus three hours. I just phoned the launching site for a jeep. Eugenio's been there ever since dinner. They say he's running around like a cat looking for a place to have her first litter of kittens. He chuckled. This would be something new for Eugenio Galvez, for which he could be thankful. I hope the generators don't develop any last-second bugs, he said. We'll only be a mile and a half away, and that'll be too close to fifty kilos of megamatter if the field collapses. It'll be all right, Pitov assured him. The bugs have all been chased out years ago. Not out of those generators in the rocket. They're new. 
He fumbled in his coat pocket for his pipe and tobacco. I never thought I'd run another nuclear bomb test as long as I lived. Lee! Pitoff was shocked. You mustn't call it that. It isn't that at all. It's purely a scientific experiment. Wasn't that all any of them were? We made lots of experiments like this back before 1969. The memories of all those other tests, each ending in an Everest-high mushroom column, rose in his mind. On the end result, the United States and the Soviet Union blasted to rubble. A whole hemisphere pushed back into the Dark Ages. A quarter of a billion dead, including a slim woman with graying blonde hair and a little red dog, and a girl from Odessa whom Alexis Pitoff had been going to marry. Forgive me, Alexis. I just couldn't help remembering. I suppose it's this shot we're going to make tonight. It's so much like the other ones before. He hesitated slightly. Before the Auburn bomb. There, he'd come out and said it. And all the years they'd worked together at the Instituto Argentino de Ciencia Física, that had been unmentioned between them. The families of hanged cutthroats avoid mention of ropes and knives. He thumbed the old-fashioned American lighter and held it to his pipe. Across the veranda, in the darkness, he knew that Pitoff was looking intently at him. "'You've been thinking about that lately, haven't you?' the Russian asked. And then, timidly, "'Was that what you were dreaming of?' "'Oh, no, thank heaven.' "'I think about it, too, always, I suppose.' He seemed relieved, now that it had been brought out into the open and could be discussed. "'You saw it fall, didn't you?' "'That's right, from about thirty miles away.' a little closer than we'll be to this shot tonight. I was in charge of the investigation at Auburn until we had New York and Washington and Detroit and Mobile and San Francisco to worry about. Then what happened to Auburn wasn't important anymore. We were trying to get evidence to lay before the United Nations. We kept at it for about twelve hours after the United Nations had ceased to exist. I could never understand about that, Lee. I don't know what the truth is. I probably never shall. But I know that my government did not launch that missile. During the first days after yours began coming in, I talked to people who had been in the Kremlin at the time. One had been in the presence of Klesenko himself when the news of your bombardment arrived. He said that Klesenko was absolutely stunned. We always believed that your government decided upon a preventive surprise attack and picked out a town, Auburn, New York, that had been hit by one of our first retaliation missiles and claimed that it had been hit first. He shook his head. Auburn was hit an hour before the first American missile was launched. I know that to be a fact. We could never understand why you launched just that one, and no more until after hours began landing on you, why you threw away the advantage of surprise and priority of attack. Because we didn't do it, Lee. The Russian's voice trembled with earnestness. You believe me when I tell you that? Yes, I believe you. After all that happened, and all that you and I and the people you worked with, and the people I worked with, and your government and mine have been guilty of, it would be a waste of breath for either of us to try to lie to the other about what happened fifteen years ago. He drew slowly on his pipe. But who launched it then? It had to be launched by somebody. Don't you think I've been tormenting myself with that question for the last fifteen years, Pitoff demanded. You know, there were people inside the Soviet Union not many, and they kept themselves well hidden, who were dedicated to the overthrow of the Soviet regime. They, or some of them, might have thought that the devastation of both our countries and the obliteration of civilization in the Northern Hemisphere would be a cheap price to pay for ending the rule of the Communist Party. 
Could they have built an ICBM with a thermonuclear warhead in secret? he asked. There were also fanatical nationalist groups in Europe, both sides of the Iron Curtain, who might have thought our mutual destruction would be worth the risks involved. There was China and India. If your country and mine wiped each other out, they could go back to the old ways and the old traditions. Or Japan, or the Muslim states. In the end, they all went down along with us, but what criminal ever expects to fall? We have too many suspects, and the trail's too cold, Alexis. That rocket wouldn't have had to have been launched anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. For instance, our friends here in the Argentine have been doing very well by themselves since El Coloso del Norte went down. And there were the Australians, picking themselves up bargains in real estate in the East Indies at gunpoint, and there were the Boers trekking north again in tanks instead of ox wagons, and Brazil, with a not-too-implausible pretender to the Braganza throne, calling itself the Portuguese Empire and looking eastward. And to complete the picture, here were Professor Dr. Lee Richardson and Comrade Professor Alexis Petrovich Pitov getting ready to test the missile with a matter-annihilation warhead. No, this thing just wasn't a weapon. A jeep came around the corner, lighting the dark roadway between the bungalows, its radio on and counting down. Twenty-two minutes. Twenty-one fifty-nine. Fifty-eight. Fifty-seven. It came to a stop in front of their bungalow at exactly minus two hours, twenty-one minutes, fifty-four seconds. The driver called out in Spanish, Dr. Richardson, Dr. Pitoff, are you ready? Yes, ready, we're coming. They both got to their feet, Richardson pulling himself up reluctantly. The older you get, the harder it is to leave a comfortable chair. He settled himself beside his colleague and former enemy, and the jeep started again, rolling between the buildings of the living quarters area and out onto the long, straight road across the pampas towards the distant blaze of electric lights. He wondered why he had been thinking so much lately about the Auburn bomb. He'd questioned at times, indignantly of course, whether Russia had launched it. But it wasn't until tonight, until he had heard what Pitoff had had to say, that he seriously doubted it. Pitoff wouldn't lie about it, and Pitoff would have been in a position to have known the truth if the missile had been launched from Russia. Then he stopped thinking about what was water or blood a long time over the dam. The special policeman at the entrance to the launching site reminded them that they were both smoking. When they extinguished respectively their cigarette and pipe, he waved the jeep on and went back to his argument with the carload of tourists who wanted to get a good view of the launching. There now, Lee, do you need anything else to convince you that this isn't a weapon project? Pitov asked. No, now that you mention it, I don't. You know, I don't believe I've had to show an identity card the whole time I've been here. I don't believe I have an identity card, Pitoff said. Think of that. The lights blazed everywhere around them, but mostly about the rocket that towered above everything else, so thick it seemed squat. The gantry cranes had been hauled away now, and it stood alone, but it was still wreathed in thick electric cables. They were pouring enough current into that thing to light half the streetlights in Buenos Aires, when the cables were blown free by separation charges at the blast-off, the generators powered by the rocket engines had better be able to take over, because if the magnetic field collapsed and that 50-kilo chunk of negative proton matter came in contact with natural positive proton matter, an old-fashioned H-bomb would be a firecracker to what would happen. Just 100 kilos of pure 200-proof MC2. The driver took them around the rocket dodging assorted trucks and mobile machinery that were being hurried out of the way. The countdown was just beyond two hours, five minutes. 
The jeep stopped at the edge of a crowd around three more trucks, and Dr. Eugenio Galvez, the director of the Institute, left the crowd and approached at an awkward half-run as they got down. Is everything checked, gentlemen, he wanted to know. It was this afternoon at 17.30, Pitoff told him. And nobody's been burning my telephone to report anything different. Are the balloons and the drone planes ready? The Air Force has just finished checking. They're ready. Captain Urquiola flew one of the planes over the course and made a guidance tape. That's been duplicated and all the planes are equipped with copies. How's the wind? Richardson asked. Still steady. We won't have any trouble about fallout or with the balloons. Then we'd better go back to the bunker and make sure everybody is there on the job. The loudspeaker was counting down to two hours, one minute. Could you spare a few minutes to talk to the press? Eugenio Galvez asked, and perhaps say a few words for telecast. This last is most important. We can't explain too many times the purpose of this experiment. There is still much hostility arising from fear that we are testing a nuclear weapon. The press and telecast services were well represented. There were close to a hundred correspondents from all over South America, from South Africa and Australia, even one from Ceylon. They had three trucks with mobile telecast pickups and when they saw who was approaching, they released the two rocketry experts they had been quizzing and pounced on the new victims. Was there any possibility that negative proton matter might be used as a weapon? Anything could be used as a weapon. You could stab a man to death with that lead pencil you're using, Pitoff replied, but I doubt if negamatter will ever be so used. We're certainly not working on weapons design here. We started six years ago with the ability to produce negative protons, reverse spin neutrons and positrons, and the theoretical possibility of assembling them into negamatter. We have just gotten a 50 kilogram mass of nega iron assembled. In those six years, we had to invent all our techniques and design all our equipment. If we'd been insane enough to want to build a nuclear weapon after what we went through up north, we could have done so from memory and designed a better, which is to say a worse one, from memory in a few days. Yes, and building a negamatter bomb for military purposes would be like digging a 50-foot shaft to get a rock to bash somebody's head in, when you could do the job better with the shovel you're digging with, Richardson added. The time, money, energy, and work we put in on this thing would be ample to construct 20 thermonuclear bombs, and that's only a small part of it. He went on to tell them about the magnetic bottle inside the rocket's warhead, mentioning how much electric current was needed to keep up the magnetic field that insulated the negamatter from contact with posimatter. Then what was the purpose of this experiment, Dr. Richardson? Oh, we were just trying to find out a few basic facts about natural structure. Long ago it was realized that the nucleonic particles, protons, neutrons, mesons, and so on, must have structure of their own. Since we started constructing negative proton matter, we found out a few things about nucleonic structure, some rather odd things, including fractions of Planck's constant. A couple of the correspondents, a man from La Prenza and an Australian, whistled softly. The others looked blank. Pitoff took over. You see, gentlemen, most of what we learned, we learned from putting negamatter atoms together. We annihilated a few of them over there in that little concrete building. We have one of the most massive steel vaults in the world where we do that. But we assembled millions of them for every one we annihilated, and that chunk of nega iron inside the magnetic bottle kept growing. And when you have a piece of negamatter you don't want, you can't just throw it out on the scrap pile. We might have rocketed it into escape velocity and let it blow up in space, away from the moon or any of the artificial satellites. But why waste it? 
So we're going to have the rocket ejected, and when it falls, we can see by our telemetered instruments just what happens. Well, won't it be annihilated by contact with atmosphere, somebody asked. That's one of the things we want to find out, Pitoff said. We estimate about 20% loss from contact with atmosphere, but the mass that actually lands on the target area should be about 40 kilos. It should be something of a spectacle coming down. You say you had to assemble it after creating the negative protons and neutrons and the positrons. Doesn't any of this sort of matter exist in nature? The man who asked that knew better himself. He just wanted the answer on the record. Oh no, not on this planet, and probably not in the galaxy. There may be whole galaxies composed of nothing but negamatter. There may even be isolated stars and planetary systems inside our galaxy composed of negamatter, though I think that very improbable. But when negamatter and posimatter come into contact with one another, the result is immediate mutual annihilation. They managed to get away from the press and returned as far as the bunkers, a mile and a half away. Before they went inside, Richardson glanced up at the sky, fixing the location of a few of the more conspicuous stars in his mind. There were almost a hundred men and women inside, each at his or her instruments, view screens, radar indicators, detection instruments of a dozen kinds. The reporters and telecast people arrived shortly afterward, and Eugenio Galvez took them in tow. While Richardson and Pitoff were making their last-minute rounds, the countdown progressed past minus one hour, and at minus twenty minutes, all the overhead lights went off, and the small instrument operator's lights came on. Pitoff turned on a couple of view screens, one from a pickup on the roof of the bunker and another from the launching pad. They sat down side by side and waited. Richardson got his pipe out and began loading it. The loudspeaker was saying, minus two minutes, 159, 58, 57. He let his mind drift away from the test, back to the world that had been smashed around his ears in the autumn of 1969. He was doing that so often now, when he should be thinking about two seconds, one second, firing. It was a second later that his eyes focused on the left-hand view screen. Red and yellow flames were gushing out of the bottom of the rocket, and it was beginning to tremble. Then the upper jets, the ones that furnished power for the generators, began firing. He looked anxiously at the meters. The generators were building up power. Finally, when he was sure that the rocket would be blasting off anyhow, the separator charges fired and the heavy cables fell away. An instant later, the big missile started inching upward, gaining speed by the second, first slowly and jerkily, and then more rapidly, until it passed out of the field of the pickup. He watched the rising spout of fire from the other screen until it passed from sight. By that time, Pitoff had twisted a dial and gotten another view on the left-hand screen, this time from close to the target. That camera was radar-controlled. It had fastened onto the approaching missile, which was still invisible. The stars swung slowly across the screen until Richardson recognized the ones he had spotted at the zenith. In a moment now, the rocket, a hundred miles overhead, would be nosing down, and then the warhead would open and the magnetic field inside would alter and the mass of negamatter would be ejected. The stars were blotted out by a sudden glow of light. Even at a hundred miles, there was enough atmospheric density to produce considerable energy release. Pitoff, beside him, was muttering, partly in German and partly in Russian. Most of what Richardson caught was figures. Trying to calculate how much of the mass of unnatural iron would get down for the ground blast. Then the right-hand screen broke into a wriggling orgy of color. 
and at the same time every scrap of radio-transmitted apparatus either went out or began reporting erratically. The left-hand screen, connected by wiring to the pickup on the roof, was still functioning. For a moment, Richardson wondered what was going on, and then shocked recognition drove that from his mind as he stared at the ever-brightening glare in the sky. It was the Auburn bomb again. He was back, in memory, to the night on the shore of Lake Ontario, the party breaking up in the early hours of morning, he and Janet, and the people with whom they had been spending a vacation week, standing on the lawn as the guests were getting into their cars, and then the sudden light in the sky, the cries of surprise, and then of alarm, as it seemed to be rushing straight down upon them. He and Janet, clutching each other and staring up in terror at the falling blaze, from which there seemed no escape. Then relief, as it curved away from them and fell to the south, and then the explosion, lighting the whole southern sky. There was a similar explosion in the screen, when the mass of mega iron landed, a sheet of pure white light, so bright and so quick as to almost pass above the limit of visibility, and then a moment's darkness that was in his stunned eyes more than in the screen, and then the rising glow of updrawn incandescent dust. Before the sound waves had reached them, he had been legging it into the house. The television had been on, and it had been acting as insanely as the screen on his right now. He had called the state police, the telephones had been working all right, and told them who he was, and they had told him to stay put and they'd send a car for him. They did within minutes. Janet and his host and hostess had waited with him on the lawn until it came, and after he had gotten into it, he had turned around and looked back through the rear window and seen Janet standing under the front light, holding the little dog in her arms, flopping one of its silly little paws up and down with her hand to wave goodbye to him. He had seen her and the dog like that every day of his life for the last fifteen years. What kind of radiation are you getting? He could hear Alexis Pitoff asking into a phone. What? Nothing else? Oh, yes, of course, but mostly cosmic. That shouldn't last long. He turned from the phone. A devil's own dose of cosmic and some gamma. It was the cosmic radiation that put the radios and telescreens out. That's why I insisted that the drone planes be independent of radio control. They always got cosmic radiation from the micro-annihilations in the test vault. Well, now, they had an idea of what produced natural cosmic rays. There must be quite a bit of negamatter and posimatter going into mutual annihilation and total energy release through the universe. Of course, there were no detectors set up in advance around Auburn, he said. We didn't really begin to find anything out for half an hour. By that time, the cosmic radiation was over, and we weren't getting anything but gamma. What, what has Auburn to do? The Russian stopped short. You think this was the same thing? He gave it a moment's consideration. Lee, you're crazy. There wasn't an atom of artificial negamatter in the world in 1969. Nobody had made any before us. We gave each other some scientific surprises then, but nobody surprised both of us. You and I between us knew everything that was going on in nuclear physics in the world. And you know, as well as I do, a voice came out of the public speaker. Some of the radio equipment around the target area that wasn't knocked out by the blast is beginning to function again. There was an increasingly heavy gamma radiation, but no more cosmic rays. They were all prompt radiation from the annihilation. The gamma is secondary effect. Wait a moment. Captain Urquiola of the Air Force says that the first drone plane is about to take off. It had been two hours after the blast that the first drones had gone over what had been Auburn, New York. He was trying to remember as exactly as possible what had been learned from them. 
Gamma radiation, a great deal of gamma, but it didn't last long. It had been almost down to a safe level by the time the investigation had been called off, and two months after there had been no more missiles, and no way of producing more, and no targets to send them against if they had them. Rather, he had been back at Auburn on his hopeless quest, and there had been almost no trace of radiation. Nothing but a wide, shallow crater, almost 200 feet in diameter, and only 15 at its deepest, already full of water, and a circle of flattened and scattered rubble for a mile and a half around it. He was willing to bet anything that that was what they'd find where the chunk of mega iron had landed, fifty miles away on the pampas. Well, the first drone ought to be over the target area before long, and at least one of the balloons that had been sent up was reporting its course by radio. The radios and the others were silent, and the recording counters had probably jammed in all of them. There'd be something of interest when the first drone came back. He dragged his mind back to the present, and went to work with Alexis Pitoff. They were at it all night, checking, evaluating, making sure that the masses of data that were coming in were being promptly processed for programming the computers. At each of the increasingly frequent coffee breaks, he noticed Pitoff looking curiously. He said nothing, however, until long after dawn, they stood outside the bunker waiting for the jeep that would take them back to their bungalow and watching the line of trucks. Argentine army engineers, locally hired laborers, load after load of prefab huts and equipment, going down toward the target area where they would be working for the next week. Lee, were you serious? Pitoff asked. I mean, about this being like the one at Auburn. It was exactly like Auburn, even that blazing light that came rushing down out of the sky. I wondered about that at the time, what kind of a missile would produce an effect like that. Now I know. We just launched one like it. But that's impossible. I told you, between us, we know everything that was happening in nuclear physics then. Nobody in the world knew how to assemble atoms of negamatter and build them into masses. Nobody and nothing on this planet built that mass of negamatter. I doubt if it even came from this galaxy. But we didn't know that then. When that negamatter meteor fell, the only thing anybody could think of was that it had been a Soviet missile. If it had hit around Leningrad or Moscow or Kharkov, who would you have blamed it on? End of The Answer by H. Beam Piper Read by Nicodemus The Blue Tower by Evelyn E. Smith This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, in Marquette, Michigan, November 2007. The Blue Tower, by Evelyn E. Smith As the vastly advanced guardians of mankind, the Belfins knew how to make a lesson stick. But whom? Ludovic Eversole sat in the golden sunshine outside his house, writing a poem as he watched the street flow gently past him. There were very few people on it, for he lived in a slow part of town, and those who went in for travel generally preferred streets where the pace was quicker. Moreover, on a sultry spring afternoon like this one, there would be few people wandering abroad. Most would be lying on sun-kissed white beaches, or in sun-drenched parks, or, for those who did not fancy being either kissed or drenched by the sun, basking in the comfort of their own air-conditioned villas. Some would, like Ludovic, be writing poems, others composing symphonies, 
still others painting pictures. Those who were without creative talent or the inclination to indulge it would be relaxing their well-kept golden bodies in whatever surroundings they had chosen to spend this particular one of the perfect days that stretched in an unbroken line before every member of the human race, from the cradle to the crematorium. Only the Belfins were much in evidence. Only the Belfins had duties to perform. Only the Belfins worked. Ludovic stretched his own well-kept golden body, and rejoiced in the knowing that he was a man and not a Belfin. Immediately afterward, he was sorry for the heartless thought. Didn't the Belfins work only to serve humanity? How ungrateful, then, it was to gloat over them! Besides, he comforted himself, probably, if the truth was known, the Belfins liked to work. He hailed a passing Belfin for assurance on this point. Courteous, like all members of his species, the creature leaped from the street and listened attentively to the young man's question. "'We Belfins have but one like and one dislike,' he replied. "'We like what is right, and we dislike what is wrong.' "'But how do you tell what is right and what is wrong?' Ludovic persisted. "'We know,' the Belfin said gazing reverently across the city to the blue spire of the tower where the Belfin of Belfins dwelt, in constant communication with every member of his race at all times, or so they said. That is why we were placed in charge of humanity. Some day you, too, may advance to the point where you know, and we shall return whence we came. But who placed you in charge? Ludovic asked. And whence did you come? Fearing he might seem motivated by vulgar curiosity, he explained, "'I am doing research for an epic poem.' A lifetime spent under their gentle guardianship had made Ludovic able to interpret the expression that filtered across this Belfin's frontispiece as a sad, sweet smile. "'We come from beyond the stars,' he said. Ludovic already knew that. He had hoped for something a little more specific." We were placed in power by those who had the right, and the power through which we rule is the power of love. Be happy. And with that conventional farewell, which also served as a greeting, he stepped onto the sidewalk and was borne off. Ludovic looked after him pensively for a moment, then shrugged. Why should the Belfins surrender their secrets to gratify the idle curiosity of a poet? Ludovic packed his portable scriptwriter in its case and went to call on the girl next door, whom he loved with a deep and intermittently requited passion. As he passed between the tall columns leading into the Flockhart courtyard, he noted with regret that there were quite a number of Coruscant's relatives present, lying about sunning themselves and sipping beverages which probably touched the legal limit of intoxicatability. Much as he hated to think harshly of anyone, he did not like Coruscant Flockhart's relatives. He had never known anybody who had as many relatives as she did, and sometimes he suspected they were not all related to her. Then he would dismiss the thought as unworthy of him, or any right-thinking human being. He loved Coruscant for herself alone and not for her family. Whether they were actually her family or not was none of his business. "'Be happy!' He greeted the assemblage cordially, sitting down beside Coruscant on the tessellated pavement. "'Bah!' said old Osmond Flockhart, Coruscant's grandfather. 
Ludovic was sure that, underneath his crustiness, the gnarled patriarch hid a heart of gold. Although he had been mining assiduously, the young man had not been able to strike that vein. However, he did not give up hope. For not giving up hope was one of the principles that his wise old Belfin teacher had inculcated in him. Other principles were to lead the good life and keep healthy. "'Now, Grandfather,' Corisande said, "'no matter what your politics, that does not excuse impoliteness.' Ludovic wished she would not allude so blatantly to politics, because he had a lurking notion that Corisande's family was, in fact, a band of conspirators, such as still dotted the green and pleasant planet, and proved by their existence that man was not advancing anywhere within measurable distance of that totality of knowledge implied by the Belfin. You could tell malcontents, even if they did not voice their dissatisfactions, by their faces— the vast majority of the human race, living good and happy lives, had smooth and pleasant faces. Malcontents' faces were lined, and sometimes, in extreme cases, furrowed. Everyone could easily tell who they were by looking at them, and most people avoided them. It was not that griping was illegal, for the Belfins permitted free speech and reasonable conspiracy. It was that such behavior was considered ungenteel. Ludovic would never have dreamed of associating with this set of neighbors, once he had discovered their tendencies, had he not lost his heart to the purple-eyed Corisande at their first meeting. "'Politeness, bah!' old Osmond said. "'To see a healthy young man simply—simply accepting the status quo!' "'If the status quo is a good status quo,' Ludovic said uneasily, for he did not like to discuss such subjects— why should I not accept it? We have everything we could possibly want. What do we lack? Our freedom, Osmond retorted. But we are free, Ludovic said, perplexed. We can say what we like, do what we like, so long as it is consonant with the public good. Ah, but who determines what is consonant with the public good? Ludovic could no longer temporize with truth, even for Corisand's sake. "'Look here, old man, I have read books. I know about the old days before the Belfins came from the stars. Men were destroying themselves quickly through wars, or slowly through want. There is none of that any more.' "'All lies and exaggeration,' old Osmond said. "'My grandfather told me that when the Belfins took over Earth, they rewrote all the textbooks to suit their own purposes.' Now nothing but Belfin propaganda is taught in the schools. But surely some of what they teach about the past must be true, Ludovic insisted. And today every one of us has enough to eat and drink, a place to live, beautiful garments to wear, and all the time in the world to utilize as he chooses, in all sorts of pleasant activities. What is missing? They've taken away our frontiers. Behind his back, Corisande made a little filial face at Ludovic. Ludovic tried to make the old man see reason. But I'm happy, and everybody is happy, except, except a few killjoys like you. They certainly did a good job of brainwashing you, boy, Osmond sighed, and of most of the young ones, he added mournfully. With each succeeding generation, more of our heritage is lost. He patted the girl's hand. "'You're a good girl, Corey. "'You don't hold with this being cared for like some damn pet poodle.' 
Never mind Osmond, Eversole. One of Coruscant's alleged uncles grinned. He talks a lot, but of course he doesn't mean a quarter of what he says. Come have some wine. He handed a glass to Ludovic. Ludovic sipped and coughed. It tasted as if it were well above the legal alcohol limit, but he didn't like to say anything. They were taking an awful risk, though, doing a thing like that. And if they got caught, they might receive a public scolding, which was, of course, no more than they deserved. But he could not bear to think of Coruscant exposed to such an ordeal. "'It's only reasonable,' the uncle went on, "'that older people should have a—' a thing about being governed by foreigners. Ludovic smiled and set his nearly full glass down on a plinth. You could hardly call the Belfins foreigners. They've been on earth longer than even the oldest of us. You seem to be pretty chummy with them, the uncle said, looking narrow-eyed at Ludovic. No more so than any other loyal citizen, Ludovic replied. The uncle sat up and wrapped his arms around his thick bare legs. He was a powerful, hairy brute of a creature, who had not taken advantage of the numerous cosmetic techniques offered by the benevolent Belfins. "'Don't you think it's funny they can breathe our air so easily?' "'Why shouldn't they?' Ludovic bit into an apple that Coruscant handed him from one of the dishes of fruit and other delicacies strewn about the courtyard. "'It's excellent air,' he continued through a full mouth, "'especially now that it's all purified.' I understand that in the old days. Yes, the uncle said. But don't you think it's a coincidence? They breathe exactly the same kind of air we do, considering they claim to come from another solar system. No coincidence at all, said Ludovic shortly, no longer able to pretend he didn't know what the other was getting at. He had heard the ugly rumor before. Of course, sacrilege was not illegal, but it was in bad taste. Only one combination of elements spawns intelligent life. They say, the uncle continued, impervious to Ludovic's unconcealed dislike for the subject, that there's really only one Belfin who lives in the Blue Tower, in a tank or something, because he can't breathe our atmosphere, and that the others are a sort of robot he sends out to do his work for him. Nonsense! Ludovic was goaded to irritation at last. How could a robot have that delicate play of expression, that subtle economy of movement? Coruscant and the uncle exchanged glances. But they are absolutely blank, the uncle began hesitantly. Perhaps with your rich poetic imagination. See, old Osmond remarked with satisfaction, the kid's brainwashed. I told you so. Even if the Belfin is a single entity, Ludovic went on, that doesn't necessarily make him less benevolent. He was again interrupted by the grandfather. I won't listen to any more of this twaddle. Benevolent, bah! He, or she, or it, or them, is, or are, just plain exploiting us, taking our mineral resources away. I've seen em loading ore on the spaceships, and— And exchanging it for other resources from the stars, Ludovic said tightly without which we would be, technologically, back in the Dark Ages from which they rescued us. "'It's not the stuff they bring in from outside that runs this technology,' the uncle said. "'It's some power they've got that we can't seem to figure out. Though Lord knows we've tried,' he added musingly. 
"'Of course they have their own source of power,' Ludovic informed them, smiling to himself, for his old Belfin teacher had taken great care to instill a sense of humor into him. "'A Belfin was explaining that to me only to-day.' Twenty heads swiveled toward him. He felt uncomfortable, for he was a modest young man, and did not like to be the cynosure of all eyes. "'Tell us, dear boy,' the uncle said, grabbing Ludovic's glass from the plinth and filling it. "'What exactly did he say?' "'He said the Belfins rule through the power of love.' The glass crashed to the tesserae, as the uncle uttered a very unworthy word. "'And I suppose it was love that killed Mike Salah and George when they tried to storm the Blue Tower,' old Osmond began, then halted at the looks he was getting from everybody." Ludovic could no longer pretend his neighbors were a group of eccentrics, whom he himself was eccentric enough to regard as charming. "'So,' he stood up and wrapped his mantle about him, "'I knew you were against the government, and, of course, you have a legal right to disagree with its policies. But I didn't think you were actual—actual—' He drudged a word up out of his school days. "'Anarchists!' He turned to the girl, who was looking thoughtful, as she stroked the glittering jewel that always hung at her neck. "'Coruscant, how can you stay with these—he found another word—these subversives?' She smiled sadly. "'Don't forget, they're my family, Ludovic, and I owe them dutiful respect, no matter how pig-headed they are.' She pressed his hand. "'But don't give up hope.' That rang a bell inside his brain. "'I won't,' he vowed giving her hand a return squeeze. I promise I won't. Outside the Flockhart Villa, he paused, struggling with his inner self. It was an unworthy thing to inform upon one's neighbors. On the other hand, could he stand idly by and let those neighbors attempt to destroy the social order? Deciding that the greater good was the more important, and that, moreover, it was the only way of taking Coruscant away from all this, he went in search of a belfin. That is, he waited until one glided past and called to him to leave the walk. "'I wish to report a conspiracy at Number 7 Mimosa Lane,' he said. "'The girl is innocent, but the others are in it to the hilt.' The Belfin appeared to think for a minute. Then he gave off a smile. "'Oh, them,' he said. "'We know. They are harmless.' "'Harmless?' Ludovic repeated. "'Why, I understand they've already tried to—' to attack the Blue Tower by force. Quite, and failed, for we are protected from hostile forces, as you were told earlier, by the power of love. Ludovic knew, of course, that the Belfin used the word love metaphorically, that the tower was protected by a series of highly efficient barriers of force to repel attackers, barriers which, he realized now from the sad fate of Mikshala and George, were potentially lethal, However, he did not blame the Belfin for being so cagey about his race's source of power, not with people like the Flockharts running about subverting and what not. "'You certainly do have a wonderful intercommunication system,' he murmured. "'Everything about us is wonderful,' the Belfin said noncommittally. "'That's why we're so good to you people. Be happy.' And he was off. But Ludovic could not be happy. He wasn't precisely sad yet— but he was thoughtful. Of course, the Belfins knew better than he did, but still, perhaps they underestimated the seriousness of the Flockhart conspiracy. 
On the other hand, perhaps it was he who was taking the Flockharts too seriously. Maybe he should investigate further before doing anything rash. Later that night he slipped over to the Flockhart villa, and nosed about in the courtyard until he found the window behind which the family was conspiring. He peered through a chink in the curtains, so he could both see and hear. Corisand was saying, "'And so I think there is a lot in what Ludovic said.' "'Bless her,' he thought emotionally. Even in the midst of her plotting, she had time to spare a kind word for him. And then it hit him. She, too, was a plotter. "'You suggest that we try to turn the power of love against the Belfins?' the uncle asked ironically. Corisand gave a rippling laugh as she twirled her glittering pendant. "'In a matter of speaking,' she said, "'I have an idea for a secret weapon which might do the trick.' At that moment Ludovic stumbled over a jug which some careless relative had apparently left lying about the courtyard. It crashed to the tesserae, spattering Ludovic's legs and sandals with a liquid which later proved to be extremely red wine. "'There's someone outside.' the uncle declared, half-rising. "'Nonsense,' Corisand said, putting her hand on his shoulder. "'I didn't hear anything.' The uncle looked dubious, and Ludovic thought it prudent to withdraw at this point. Besides, he had heard enough. Corisand, his Corisand, was an integral part of the conspiracy. He lay down to sleep that night beset by doubts. If he told the Belfins about the conspiracy— he would be betraying Corisand. As a matter of fact, he now remembered, he had already told them about the conspiracy, and they hadn't believed him. But supposing he could convince them, how could he give Corisand up to them? True, it was the right thing to do, but for the first time in his life he could not bring himself to do what he knew to be right. He was weak, weak, and weakness was sinful. His old Belfin teacher had taught him that, too. As Ludovic writhed restlessly upon his bed, he became aware that someone had come into his chamber. "'Ludovic,' a soft, beloved voice whispered, "'I have come to ask your help.' It was so dark he could not see her. He knew where she was only by the glitter of the jewel on her neck-chain as it arced through the blackness. "'Corisand,' he breathed. "'Ludovic,' she sighed. Now that the amenities were over, she resumed, "'Against my will, I have been involved in the family plot. My uncle has invented a secret weapon, which he believes will counteract the power of the barriers.' "'But I thought you devised it.' "'So it was you in the courtyard. Well, what happened was, I wanted to gain time, so I said I had a secret weapon of my own invention, which I had not perfected, but which would cost considerably less than my uncle's model. We have to watch the budget, you know, because we can hardly expect the Belfins to supply the components for this job. Anyhow, I thought that, while my folks were waiting for me to finish it, you would have a chance to warn the Belfins. Corisand, he murmured, you are as noble and clever as you are beautiful. Then he caught the full import of her remarks. Me! "'But they won't pay any attention to me.' "'How do you know?' When he remained silent, she said, "'I suppose you've already tried to warn them about us.' "'I—I I said you had nothing to do with the plot.' "'That was good of you,' 
she continued in a warmer tone. "'How many belfins did you warn, then?' "'Just one. When you tell one something, you tell them all. You know that. Everyone knows that.' "'That's just theory,' she said. "'It's never been proven. All we do know is that they have some sort of central clearinghouse of information. Presumably the belfin of belfins. But we don't know that they are incapable of thinking or acting individually.' "'We don't really know much about them at all. "'They're very secretive.' "'Aloof,' he corrected her, "'as befits a ruling race, but always affable. "'You must warn as many belfins as you can.' "'And if none listens to me?' "'Then she said dramatically, "'You must approach the belfin of belfins himself.' "'But no human being has ever come near him,' "'he said plaintively. "'You know that all those who have tried perished.' "'And that can't be a rumor, because your grandfather said, "'But they came to attack the Belfin. "'You're coming to warn him. "'That makes a big difference. "'Ludovic.' "'She took his hands in hers. "'In the darkness the jewel swung madly "'on her presumably heaving bosom. "'This is bigger than both of us. "'It's for Earth.' "'He knew it was his patriotic duty to do as she said. "'Still, he had enjoyed life so much.' Coruscant, wouldn't it be much simpler if we just destroyed your uncle's secret weapon? He'd only make another. Don't you see, Ludovic? This is our only chance to save the Belfins, to save humanity. But, of course, I don't have the right to send you. I'll go myself. No, Coruscant, he sighed. I can't let you go. I'll do it. Next morning he set out to warn Belfins. He knew it wasn't much use, but it was all he could do. The first half-dozen responded in much the same way the Belfin he had warned the previous day had done, by courteously acknowledging his solicitude and assuring him there was no need for alarm. They knew all about the flockharts, and everything would be all right. After that they started to get increasingly huffy, which would, he thought, substantiate the theory that they were all part of one vast coordinate network of identity— especially since each Belfin behaved as if Ludovic had been repeatedly annoying him. Finally, they refused to get off the walks when he hailed them, which was unheard of, for no Belfin had ever before failed to respond to an Earthman's call, and when he started running along the walks after them, they ran much faster than he could. At last he gave up and wandered about the city for hours, speaking to neither human nor Belfin, wondering what to do. That is, he knew what he had to do. He was wondering how to do it. He would never be able to reach the Belfin of Belfins. No human being had ever done it. Mikshalaw and George had died trying to reach him, or it, even though their intentions had been hostile, and Ludovic's would be helpful. There was little chance he would be allowed to reach the Belfin with all the other Belfins against him. What guarantee was there that the Belfin would not be against him, too? And yet he knew that he would have to risk his life. There was no help for it. He had never wanted to be a hero, and here he had heroism thrust upon him. He knew he could not succeed. Equally well, he knew he could not turn back, for his Belfin teacher had instructed him in the meaning of duty. It was twilight when he approached the Blue Tower. Commending himself to the infinite virtue, he entered. The Belfin at the reception desk did not give off the customary smiling expression. In fact, 
he seemed to radiate a curiously apprehensive aura. "'Go back, young man,' he said. "'You're not wanted here.' "'I must see the Belfin of Belfins. I must warn him against the Flockharts.' "'He has been warned,' the receptionist told him. "'Go home and be happy.' "'I don't trust you or your brothers. I must see the Belfin himself.' Suddenly this particular Belfin lost his commanding manners. He began to wilt, insofar as so rigidly constructed a creature could go limp. "'Please, we've done so much for you. Do this for us.' "'The Belfin of Belfins did things for us,' Ludovic countered. "'You are all only his followers. How do I know you are—' really following him. How do I know you haven't turned against him? Without giving the creature a chance to answer, he strode forward. The Belfin attempted to bar his way. Ludovic knew one Belfin was a myriad times as strong as a human, so it was out of utter futility that he struck. The Belfin collapsed completely, flying apart in a welter of fragile springs and gears. The fact was of some deeper significance, Ludovic knew, but he was too numbed by his incredible success to be able to think clearly. All he knew was that the Belfin would be able to explain things to him. Bells began to clash and clang. That meant the force barriers had gone up. He could see the shimmering insubstance of the first one before him. Squaring his shoulders, he charged it and walked right through. He looked himself up and down. He was alive and entire. Then the whole thing was a fraud. The barriers were not lethal, or perhaps even actual. But what of Mikshalaw and George, and countless rumored others? He would not let himself even try to think of them. He would not let himself even try to think of anything save his duty. A staircase spiraled up ahead of him. A belfin was at its foot. Behind him, a barrier iridesced. "'Please, young man,' the Belfin began, "'you don't understand. Let me explain.' But Ludovic destroyed the thing before it could say anything further, and he passed right through the barrier. He had to get to the top and warn the Belfin of Belfins, whoever or whatever he or it was, that the Flockharts had a secret weapon which might be able to annihilate it or him. Belfin after Belfin Ludovic destroyed— and barrier after barrier he penetrate until he reached the top. At the head of the stairs was a vast golden door. "'Go no further, Ludovic Eversall,' a mighty voice roared from within. "'To open that door is to bring disaster upon your race.' But all Ludovic knew was that he had to get to the Belfin within and warn him. He battered down the door. That is— he would have battered down the door if it had not turned out to be unlocked. A stream of noxious vapor rushed out of the opening, causing him to black out. When he came to, most of the vapor had dissipated. The Belfin of Belfins was already dying of asphyxiation, since it was, in fact, a single alien entity who breathed another combination of elements. The room at the head of the stairs had been its tank. "'You fool!' it gasped. Through your muddle-headed integrity, you have destroyed not only me, but Earth's future. I tried to make this planet a better place for humanity, and 
this is my reward but i don't understand ludovic wept why did you let me do it why were mikshalaw and george and all the others killed why was it that i could pass the barriers and they could not the barriers were triggered to respond to hostility you meant well so our defences could not work ludovic had to bend low to hear the creature's last words there is earth proverb should have warned me i protect myself against my enemies but who will protect me from my friends the belfin of belfins died in ludovic's arms he was the last of his race so far as earth was concerned for no more came if as they had said themselves some outside power had sent them to take care of the human race then that power had given up the race as a bad job if they were merely exploiting earth as the malcontents had kept suggesting apparently it had proven too dangerous or too costly a venture shortly after the belfin's demise the flockharts arrived en masse we won't need your secret weapon now ludovic told them dully the belfin of belfins is dead Coruscant gave one of the rippling laughs he was to grow to hate so much darling you were my secret weapon all along she beamed at her relatives and it was then he noticed the faint lines of her forehead i told you i could use the power of love to destroy the belfins and then she added gently i think there is no doubt who is head of this family now the uncle gave a strained laugh you're going to have a great little first lady there boy he said to ludovic first lady ludovic repeated still absorbed in his grief yes i imagine the people will want to make you our first president by popular acclaim ludovic looked at him through a haze of tears but i killed the belfin i didn't mean to but they must hate me nonsense my boy they'll adore you you'll be a hero events proved him right even those people who had lived in apparent content under the belfins accepting what they were given and seemingly enjoying their carefree lives now declared themselves to have been suffering in silent resentment all along they hurled flowers and adultery speeches at ludovic and composed extremely flattering songs about him shortly after he was universally acclaimed president he married Coruscant. he couldn't escape why doesn't she become president herself he wailed when the relatives came and found him hiding in the ruins of the blue tower the people had torn the tower down as soon as they were sure the belfin was dead and the others thereby rendered inoperant it would spare her a lot of bother because she is not the belfin slayer the uncle said dragging him outside "'Besides, she loves you. Come on, Ludovic, be a man.' So they hauled him off to the wedding, and amid much feasting he was married to Coruscant. He never drew another happy breath. In the first place, now that the Belfin was dead, all the machinery that had been operated by him stopped, and no one knew how to fix it. The sidewalks stopped moving, the air conditioners stopped conditioning, the food synthesizers stopped synthesizing, and so on, 
and, of course, everybody blamed it all on Ludovic. Even that year's run of bad weather. There were famines, riots, plagues, and after the waves of mob hostility had coalesced into national groupings, wars. It was like the old days again, precisely as described in the textbooks. In the second place, Ludovic never forgot that when Corisand had sent him to the Blue Tower, she could not have been sure that her secret weapon would work. Love might not have conquered all. In fact, it was the more likely hypothesis that it wouldn't, and he would have been killed by the first barrier. And no husband likes to think that his wife thinks he's expendable. It makes him feel she doesn't really love him. So, in thirtieth year of his reign as dictator of Earth, Ludovic poisoned Corsand, that is, had her poisoned, for, by now, he had a minister of assassination to handle such little matters, and married a very pretty, very young, very affectionate blonde. He wasn't particularly happy with her, either, but at least it was a change. End of The Blue Tower by Evelyn E. Smith This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read and recorded by Betsy Bush, Marquette, Michigan, September 2007. Bread Overhead by Fritz Lieber The staff of life suddenly and disconcertingly sprouted wings, and mankind had to eat crow. As a blisteringly hot but guaranteed weather-controlled future summer day dawned on the Mississippi Valley, the walking mills of puffy products, spiked to loaf in one operation, began to tread delicately on their centipede legs across the wheat-fields of Kansas. The walking mills resembled fat metal serpents, rather larger than those Chinese paper dragons animated by files of men in procession. Sensory robot devices in their noses informed them that the waiting wheat had reached ripe perfection. As they advanced, their heads swung lazily from side to side, very much like snakes, gobbling the yellow grain. In their throats it was threshed, the chaff bundled, and burped aside for pickup by the crawl trucks of a chemical corporation. The kernels quick-dried and blown along into the mighty chests of the machines. There the tireless mills ground the kernels to flour, which was instantly sifted, the bran being packaged and dropped like the chaff for pickup. A cluster of tanks, which gave the metal serpents a decidedly hump-backed appearance, added water, shortening, salt, and other ingredients, some named and some not. The dough was at the same time infused with gas from a tank conspicuously labeled carbon dioxide. No yeast creatures in your bread! Thus instantly risen, the dough was clipped into loaves and shot into radionic ovens forming the midsections of the metal serpents. There the bread was baked in a matter of seconds, a fierce heat front-browning the crusts, and the piping-hot loaves sealed in transparent plastic bearing the proud puffy-loaf emblem, two cherubs circling a floating loaf, and ejected onto the delivery platform at each serpent's rear end were a cluster of pickup machines like hungry piglets, snatched at the loaves with hygienic claws. A few loaves would be hurried off for the day's consumption, the majority stored for winter in strategically located mammoth deep freezes. But now behold a wonder, 
as loaves began to appear on the delivery platform of the first walking mill to get into action they did not linger on the conveyor belt but rose gently into the air and slowly travelled off downwind across the hot rippling fields the robot claws of the pickup machines clutched in vain and not noticing the difference proceeded carefully to stack emptiness tier by tier one errant loaf rising more sluggishly than its fellows was snagged by a thrusting claw the machine paused clumsily wiped off the injured loaf set it aside where it bobbed on one corner unable to take off again and went back to the work of storing nothingness a flock of crows rose from the trees of a nearby shelter belt as the flight of loaves approached the crows swooped to investigate and then suddenly scattered screeching in panic the helicopter of a hangoverish sunday traveller bound for wichita shied very similarly from the brown flyers and did not return for a second look a black-haired housewife spied them over her back fence crossed herself and grabbed her walkie-talkie from the laundry basket seconds later the yawning correspondent of a regional newspaper was jotting down the lead of a humorous news story which recalling the old flying saucer scares stated that now apparently bread was to be included in the mad aerial tea-party the congregation of an open-walled country church standing up to recite the most familiar of christian prayers had just reached the petition for daily sustenance when a subflight of the loaves either forced down by a vagrant wind or lacking the natural buoyancy of the rest came coasting silently as the sunbeams between the graceful pillars at the altar end of the building meanwhile the main flight now augmented by other bread flocks from scores and hundreds of walking mills that had started work a little later mounted slowly and majestically into the cirrus flecked upper air where a steady wind was blowing strongly toward the east about one thousand miles farther on in that direction where a cluster of stratosphere tickling towers marked the location of the metropolis of new new york a tender scene was being enacted in the pressurized penthouse managerial suite of puffy products Magira Winterly, secretary-in-chief to the managerial board, and referred to by her underlings as the blonde icicle, was dealing with the advances of Roger Racehorse Sneedon, assistant secretary to the board, and often indistinguishable from any passing office boy. "'Why don't you jump out the window, Roger, remembering to shut the airlock after you?' the Golden Glacier said in tones not unkind. When are your high-strung, thoroughbred nerves going to accept the fact that I would never consider marriage with a business inferior? You have about as much chance as a starving Ukrainian kulak, now that Moscow's clapped on the interdict. Roger's voice was calm, although his eyes were feverishly bright, as he replied, A lot of things are going to be different around here, Meg, as soon as the board is forced to admit that only my quick thinking made it possible to bring the name of Puffyloaf in front of the whole world. Puffyloaf could do with a little of that, the business girl observed judiciously. The way sales have been plummeting, it won't be long before the government deeds our desks to the managers of fairy bread and asks us to take the big jump. But just where does your quick thinking come into this, Mr. Sneedon? You can't be referring to the helium. That was Rose Thinker's brainwave. She studied him suspiciously. You've birthed another promotional bumble, Roger. I can see it in your eyes. I only hope it's not as big a one as when you put the Martian ambassador on 3D, and he thanked you profusely for the gross of puffy loaves, assuring you that he'd never slept on a softer mattress in all his life on two planets. 
Listen to me, Meg. Today, yes, today, you're going to see the board eating out of my hand. Ha! I guarantee you won't have any fingers left. You're bold enough now, but when Mr. Grice and those two big machines come through that door— Now wait a minute, Meg. Hush, they're coming now. Roger leaped three feet in the air, but managed to land without a sound, and edged toward his stool. Through the dilating iris of the door strode Phineas T. Grice, flanked by Rose Thinker and Tin Philosopher. The man approached the conference table in the center of the room with measured pace and gravely expressionless face. The rose-tinted machine on his left did a couple of impulsive pirouettes on the way, and twittered a greeting to Meg and Roger. The other machine quietly took the third of the high seats, and lifted a claw at Meg, who now occupied a stool twice the height of Roger's. "'Miss Winterly, please, our theme!' The blonde icicle's face thawed into a little girl smile as she chanted bubblingly, "'Made up of tiny wheaten moats, and reinforced with sturdy oats, it rises through the air and floats, the bread on which all Terra dotes!' "'Thank you, Miss Winterly,' said Tin Philosopher, though a purely figurative statement. That bit about rising through the air always gets me here.' He wrapped his midsection, which gave off a high musical clang. "'Ladies,' he inclined his photocells toward Rose Thinker and Meg, "'and gentlemen, this is a historic occasion in old Puffy's long history, the inauguration of the helium-filled loaf, so light it almost floats away.' in which that inert and heaven-aspiring gas replaces old-fashioned carbon dioxide. Later, there will be kudos for Rose Thinker, whose bright relay's genius sparked the idea, and also for Roger Sneedon, who took care of the details. By the by, racehorse, that was a brilliant piece of work getting the helium out of the government. They've been pretty stuffy lately about their monopoly. But first I want to throw aside the casement in your minds that opens on the long view of things." Rose Thinker spun twice on her chair and opened her photocells wide. Tin Philosopher coughed to limber up the diaphragm of his speaker and continued. Ever since the first cave wife boasted to her next den neighbor about the superior paleness and fluffiness of her tortillas, mankind has sought lighter, whiter bread. Indeed, thinkers wiser than myself have equated the whole upward course of culture with this poignant quest. Yeast was a wonderful discovery for its primitive day— Sifting the bran and wheat germ from the flour was an even more important advance. Early bleaching and preserving chemicals played their humble parts. For a while, barbarous faddists, blind to the deeply spiritual nature of bread, which is recognized by all great religions, held back our march toward perfection with their hair-splitting insistence on the vitamin content of the wheat germ. But their case collapsed when tasteless, colorless substitutes were triumphantly synthesized and introduced into the loaf, which for flawless purity, unequaled airiness, and sheer intangible goodness was readily becoming mankind's supreme gustatory experience. "'I wonder what the stuff tastes like,' Rose Thinker said out of a clear sky. "'I wonder what taste tastes like,' Tin Philosopher echoed dreamily. Recovering himself, he continued— then early in the twenty-first century came the epochal researches of Everett Whitehead, Puffyloaf chemist, culminating in his paper The Structural Bubble in Cereal Masses, and making possible the baking of airtight bread twenty times stronger, for its weight, than steel, and of a lightness that would have been incredible even to the advanced chemist bakers of the twentieth century. 
a lightness so great that, besides forming the backbone of our own promotion, it has forever been capitalized on by our conscienceless competitors of fairy bread, with their enduring slogan, It makes ghost toast. That's a beaut, all right, that ecto dough blurb, Rose Thinker admitted, bugging her photocells sadly. Wait a sec. How about, There'll be bread overhead when you're dead, it is said. Phineas T. Grice wrinkled his nostrils at the pink machine as if he smelled her insulation smoldering. He said mildly, A somewhat unhappy jingle rose, referring as it does to the end of the customer as consumer. Moreover, we shouldn't overplay the figurative rises through the air angle. What inspired you? She shrugged. I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. I was remembering one of the workers' songs we machines used to chant during the big strike. Work and play, live on hay, you'll get pie in the sky, when you die it's a lie. I don't know why we chanted it, she added. We didn't want pie, or hay for that matter, and machines don't pray, except Tibetan prayer wheels. Phineas T. Grice shook his head. Labor relations are another topic we should stay far away from. However, dear Rose, I'm glad you keep trying to outjingle those dirty crooks at fairy bread. He scowled, turning back his attention to Tin Philosopher. I get whopping mad, old machine, whenever I hear that other slogan of theirs, the discriminatory one, untouched by robot claws, just because they employ a few filthy androids in their factories. Tin Philosopher lifted one of his own sets of bright talons. Thanks, P.T., but to continue my historical resume, the next great advance in the baking art was the substitution of purified carbon dioxide, recovered from coal smoke, for the gas generated by yeast organisms indwelling in the dough, and later killed by the heat of baking, their corpses remaining in situ. But even purified carbon dioxide is itself a rather repugnant gas, a product of metabolism, whether fast or slow, and forever associated with those life processes which are obnoxious to the fastidious. Here the machine shuddered with delicate clinkings. Therefore, we of Puffyloaf are taking today what may be the ultimate step toward purity. We are aerating our loaves with the noble gas helium, an element which remains virginal in the face of all chemical temptations, and whose slim molecules are eleven times lighter than obese carbon dioxide. Yes, noble uncontaminable helium, which, if it be a kind of ash, is yet the ash only of radioactive burning, accomplished or initiated entirely on the sun, a safe ninety-three million miles from this planet. Let's have a cheer for the helium loaf. Without changing expression, Phineas T. Grice rapped the table thrice in solemn applause, while the others bowed their heads. Thanks, T.P., P.T. then said. And now for the moment of truth. Miss Winterly, how is the helium loaf selling? The business girl clapped on a pair of earphones and whispered into a lapel mic. Her gaze grew abstracted as she mentally translated flurries of brief squawks into coherent messages. Suddenly a single vertical furrow creased her matchless smooth brow. "'It isn't, Mr. Grice,' she gasped in horror. "'Fairy bread is outselling puffy-loafs by an infinity factor. So far this morning there has not been one single delivery of puffy-loafs to any sales spot.' Complaints about non-delivery are pouring in from both walking stores and sessile shops. "'Mr. Sneedon,' Grice barked, "'what bug in the new helium process might account for this delay?' Roger was on his feet, looking bewildered. "'I can't imagine, sir. 
unless, just possibly, there has been some unforeseeable difficulty involving the new metal foil wrappers. Metal foil wrappers? Were you responsible for those? Yes, sir. Last-minute recalculations showed that the extra lightness of the new loaf might be great enough to cause drift during stackage. Drafts in stores might topple sales pyramids. Metal foil wrappers, by their added weight, took care of the difficulty. And you ordered them without consulting the board? Yes, sir. There was hardly time, and— Why, you fool! I noticed that order for metal foil wrappers, assumed it was some subsecretary's mistake, and cancelled it last night. Roger Sneedon turned pale. You cancelled it, he quavered, and told them to go back to the lighter plastic wrappers? Of course. Just what is behind all this, Mr. Sneedon? What recalculations were you trusting? When our physicists were demonstrated months ago that the helium loaf was safely stackable in light airs and gentle breezes, winds up to Beaufort scale three, why should a change from heavier to lighter wrappers result in complete non-delivery? Roger Sneedon's paleness became tinged with an interesting green. He cleared his throat and made strange gulping noises. Tin philosophers' photocells focused on him calmly. Rose Thinker's was unfeigned excitement. P.T. Grice's frown grew blacker by the moment, while Megara Winterly's Venus mask showed an odd dawning of dismay and awe. She was getting new squawks in her earphones. Er, uh, er, Roger said in winning tones. Well, you see, the fact is that I— Hold it, Meg interrupted crisply. Triple urgent from Public Relations, Safety Division. Tulsa Topeka, Aero Express, makes emergency landing after being buffeted in a counter with a vast flight of objects, first described as brown birds, although no failures reported in Airways' electronic anti-bird fences. After grounding safely near Emporia, no fatalities, pilot's windshield found thinly plastered with soft white and brown material. Emblems on plastic wrappers embedded in material identify it inconvertibly as an undetermined number of puffy loafs cruising at three thousand feet. Eyes and photocells turned inquisitorially upon Roger Sneedon. He went from green to puffy loaf white and blurted, All right, I did it, but it was the only way out. Yesterday morning, due to the Ukrainian crisis, the government stopped sales and deliveries of all the strategic stockpiled materials, including helium gas. Puffy's new program of advertising and promotion, based on the lighter loaf, was already rolling. There was only one thing to do, there being only one other gas comparable to lightness to helium. I diverted the necessary quantity of hydrogen gas from the hydrogenated oil section of our magna margarine division and substituted it for the helium. You substituted hydrogen for the helium? Phineas T. Grice faltered in low mechanical tones, taking four steps backward. "'Hydrogen is twice as light as helium,' Tin Philosopher remarked judiciously. "'And many times cheaper, did you know that?' Roger countered feebly. "'Yes, I substituted hydrogen. The metal foil wrapping would have added just enough weight to counteract the greater buoyancy of the hydrogen loaf, but—' "'So when this morning's loaves began to arrive on the delivery platforms of the walking mills—' Tin Philosopher left the remark unfinished. "'Exactly,' Roger agreed dismally. "'Let me ask you, Mr. Sneedon,' Grice interjected, still in low tones, "'if you expected people to jump to the kitchen ceiling for their puffy bread after taking off the metal wrapper, or reach for the sky if they happened to unwrap the stuff outdoors.' 
"'Mr. Grice,' Roger said reproachfully, "'you have often assured me that what people do with puffy bread after they buy it is no concern of ours.' "'I seem to recall,' Rose Thinker chirped somewhat unkindly, "'that dictum was created to answer inquiries after Roger put the famous sculptures in miniature artist on 3D, and he testified that he always molded his first attempts from puffy bread, one jumbo loaf squeezing down to approximately the size of a peanut.' Her photocells dimmed and brightened. Oh, boy, hydrogen! The loaf's unwrapped. After a while, in spite of the crust seal, a little oxygen diffuses in. An explosive mixture. Housewife in curlers and kimono pops a couple of slices in the toaster. Boom! The three human beings in the room winced. Tin Philosopher kicked her under the table while observing. So you see, Roger— that the non-delivery of the hydrogen loaf carries some consolations, and I must confess that one aspect of the affair gives me great satisfaction, not as a board member, but as a private machine. You have at last made a reality of the rises through the air, part of Puffy Bread's theme. They can't ever take that away from you. By now, half the inhabitants of the Great Plains must have observed our flying loaves rising high. Phineas T. Grice shot a frightened look at the west windows and found his full voice. "'Stop the mills!' he roared at Meg Winterly, who nodded and whispered urgently into her mic. "'A sensible suggestion,' Tin Philosopher said. "'But it comes a trifle late in the day. If the mills are still walking and grinding, approximately seven billion puffy loafs are at this moment cruising eastward over middle America. Remember that a six-month supply for deep-freeze is involved, and that the current consumption of bread, due to its matchless airiness, is eight and one-half loaves per person per day.' Phineas T. Grice carefully inserted both hands into his scanty hair, feeling for a good grip. He leaned menacingly toward Roger, who, chin resting on the table, regarded him apathetically. "'Hold it,' Meg called sharply. "'Flock of multiple urgents coming in. News liaison. Information bureaus swapped with flying bread inquiries. Aero express lines. Clear out airways or face lawsuit. U.S. Army.' Why do loaves flame when hit by incendiary bullets? U.S. Customs. If bread intended for export, get export license or face prosecution. Russian consulate in Chicago. Advise on destination of bread lift. And some Kansas church is accusing us of a hoax, inciting to blasphemy, of faking miracles. I don't know why. The business girl tore off her headphones. "'Roger Sneedon!' she cried with a hysteria that would have dumbfounded her underlings. "'You've brought the name of Puffyloaf in front of the whole world, all right. Now do something about the situation!' Roger nodded obediently, but his pallor increased a shade, the pupils of his eyes disappeared under the upper lids, and his head burrowed beneath his forearms. "'Oh, boy!' Rose Thinker called gaily to Tin Philosopher. "'This looks like the start of a real crisis session!' "'Did you remember to bring spare batteries?' Meanwhile, the monstrous flight of puffy loaves filling Midwestern skies, as no small flyers had since the days of the passenger pigeon, soared steadily onward. Private flyers approached the brown and glistening bread front in curiosity and dipped down in awe. Aero express lines organized sightseeing flights along the flanks. Planes of the government forestry and agricultural services and copters bearing the puffy loaf emblem hovered on the fringes, watching developments and waiting for orders. 
a squadron of supersonic fighters hung menacingly above. The behavior of birds varied considerably. Most fled or gave the loaves a wide berth. But some bolder species, discovering the minimal nutritive nature of the translucent brown objects, attacked them furiously with beaks and claws. Hydrogen diffusing slowly through the crusts had now distended most of the sealed plastic wrappers into little balloons, which ruptured when pierced with disconcerting pops. Below, neck-craning citizens crowded streets and backyards, cranks and cultists had a field day, while local and national governments raged indiscriminately at Puffyloaf and at each other. Rumors that a fusion weapon would be exploded in the midst of the flying bread drew angry protests from conservationists, and a flood of telefax pamphlets titled H-Loaf or H-Bomb. Stockholm sent a mystifying note of praise to the United Nations Food Organization. Delhi issued nervous denials of a millet blight that no one had heard of until that moment, and reaffirmed India's ability to feed her population with no outside help except the usual. Radio Moscow asserted that the Kremlin would brook no interference in its treatment of the Ukrainians, jokingly referred to the flying bread as a farce perpetuated by mad internationalists inhabiting cloud-cuckoo land, added contradictory references to airborne bread booby-trapped by capitalist gangsters, and then fell moodily silent on the whole topic. Radio Venus reported to its winged audience that Earth's inhabitants were establishing food depots in the upper air, preparatory to taking up permanent aerial residence, such as we have always enjoyed on Venus. New New York made feverish preparations for the passage of the flying bread. Tickets for sightseeing space in skyscrapers were sold at high prices. Cold meats and potted spreads were hawked to viewers with the assurance that they would be able to snag the bread out of the air and enjoy a historic sandwich. Phineas T. Grice, escaping from his own managerial suite, raged about the city, demanding general cooperation in the stretching of great nets across the skyscrapers to trap the errant loaves. He was captured by Tin Philosopher, escaped again, and was found posted with oxygen mask and submachine gun on the topmost spire of Puffyloaf Tower, apparently determined to shoot down the loaves as they appeared and before they involved his company in more trouble with customs and the State Department. Recaptured by Tin Philosopher, who suffered only minor bullet holes, he was given a series of mild electroshocks and returned to the conference table calm and clear-headed as ever. But the bread flight, swinging away from a hurricane moving up the Atlantic coast, crossed a clouded in Boston by night and disappeared into a high Atlantic overcast, also thereby evading a local storm generated by the weather department in a last-minute effort to bring down or at least disperse the H-loaves. Warnings and counter-warnings by communist and capitalist governments seriously interfered with military trailing of the flight during this period, and it was actually lost in touch with for several days. At scattered points, seagulls were observed fighting over individual loaves floating down from the gray roof. That was all. A mood of spirituality strongly tinged with humor seized the people of the world. Ministers sermonized about the bread, variously interpreting it as a call to charity, a warning against gluttony, a parable of the effervescence of all earthly things, and a divine joke. Husbands and wives, facing each other across their walls of breakfast toast, burst into laughter. The mere sight of a loaf of bread anywhere was enough to evoke guffaws. An obscure sect, having as part of its creed the injunction, 
don't take yourself so damn seriously, one new adherence. The bread flight, rising above an Atlantic storm widely reported to have destroyed it, passed unobserved across a foggy England, and rose out of the overcast, only over middle Europia. The loaves had at last reached their maximum altitude. The sun's rays beat through the rarefied air on the distended plastic wrappers, increasing still further the pressure of the confined hydrogen. They burst by the millions and tens of millions. A high-flying Bulgarian evangelist, who had happened to mistake the up-lever for the east-lever in the cockpit of his flyer, and who was the sole witness of the event, afterward described it as the foaming of a sea of diamonds, the crackle of God's knuckles. By the millions and tens of millions, the loaves coasted down into the starving Ukraine. Shaken by a week of humor that threatened to invade even its own grim precincts, the Kremlin made a sudden about-face. A new policy was instituted of communal ownership of the produce of communal farms, and teams of hungry fighters and caravans of trucks, loaded with pumpernickel, were dispatched into the Ukraine. World distribution was given to a series of photographs showing peasants queuing up to trade scavenged puffy loaves for traditional black bread, recently aerated itself, but still extra solid by comparison, the rate of exchange demanded by the Moscow teams being twenty puffy loaves to one of pumpernickel. Another series of photographs picturing chubby workers' children being blown to bits by booby-trapped bread was quietly destroyed. Congratulatory notes were exchanged by various national governments and world organizations, including the Brotherhood of Free Business Machines. The great bread flight was over, though for several weeks afterward scattered falls of loaves occurred, giving rise to a new folklore of manna among lonely Arabian tribesmen, and in one well-authenticated instance in Tibet, sustaining life in a party of mountaineers cut off by a snowslide. Back in New New York, the managerial board of Puffy Products slumped in utter collapse around the conference table. The long crisis session at last ended. Empty coffee cartons were scattered around the chairs of the three humans, dead batteries around those of the two machines. For a while there was no movement whatsoever. Then Roger Sneedon reached out wearily for the earphones, where Magira Winterly had hurled them down, adjusted them to his head, pushed a button, and listened apathetically. After a bit his gaze brightened. He pushed more buttons and listened more eagerly. Soon he was sitting tensely upright on his stool, eyes bright and lower face all a smile, muttering terse comments and questions into the lapel mark torn from Meg's fair neck. The others, reviving, watched him, at first dully, then with quickening interest, especially when he jerked off the earphones with a happy shout and sprang to his feet. "'Listen to this!' he cried in a ringing voice. "'As a result of the worldwide publicity, puffy loaves are outselling fairy bread three to one, and that's just the old carbon dioxide stock from our freezers. It's almost exhausted. But the government, now that the Ukrainian crisis is over, has taken the ban off helium, and will also sell us a stockpiled wheat if we need it. We can have our walking mills burrowing into the wheat caves in a matter of hours. But that isn't all.' The far greater demand everywhere is for puffy loaves that will actually float. Public Relations, Child Liaison Divisions, reports that the kiddies are making their mothers' lives miserable about it. If only we can figure out some way to make hydrogen non-explosive, or the helium loaf float just a little. 
"'I'm sure we can take care of that quite handily,' Tin Philosopher interrupted briskly. "'Puffyloaf has kept it a corporation secret. Even you've never been told about it. But just before he went crazy, Everett Whitehead discovered a way to make bread using only half as much flour as we do in the present loaf. Using this secret technique, which we've been saving for just such an emergency, it will be possible to bake a helium loaf as buoyant, in every respect, as the hydrogen loaf.' "'Good!' Roger cried. "'We'll tether em on strings and sell em like balloons. "'No mother-child shopping team will leave the store without a cluster. "'Buying bread balloons will be the big event of the day for kiddies. "'It'll make the carry-home shopping load lighter, too. "'I'll issue orders at once.' "'He broke off, looking at Phineas T. Grice, said with quiet assurance, "'Excuse me, sir, if I seem to be taking too much upon myself.' "'Not at all, son. Go straight ahead,' the great manager said approvingly. "'You're,' he laughed in anticipation of getting off a memorable remark, "'rising to the challenging situation like a genuine puffy loaf.' Magira Winterly looked from the older man to the younger. Then, in a single leap, she was upon Roger, her arms wrapped tightly around him. "'My sweet little ever-victorious self-propelled monkey-wrench,' she crooned in his ear." Roger looked fatuously over her soft shoulder at Tin Philosopher, who, as if moved by some similar feeling, reached over and touched claws with Rose Thinker. This, however, was what he telegraphed silently to his fellow machine across the circuit so completed. "'Good old Rosie, that makes another victory for robot-engineered world unity, though you almost gave us away at the start with that bread-overhead jingle.' We've struck another blow against next world war, in which, as we know only too well, we machines would suffer the most. Now, if we can only arrange, say, a fur famine in Alaska, and a migration of long-haired Siberian lemmings across Bering Straits, we'd have to swing the Japanese current up there so it'd be warm enough for the little fellows. Anyhow, Rosie, with a spot of help from the Brotherhood, those humans will paint themselves into the peace corner yet." Meanwhile, he and Rosie Thinker quietly watched the blonde icicle melt. End of Bread Overhead by Fritz Lieber Second Sight This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Jody Krangle. Second Sight by Alan Edward Norse. Note, the following excerpts from Amy Ballantyne's journal have never actually been written down at any time before. Her account of impressions and events has been kept in organized fashion in her mind for at least nine years. Even she is not certain when she started but it must be understood that certain inaccuracies in transcription could not possibly have been avoided in the excerpting attempted here. The Editor Tuesday, 16th May. Lambertson got back from Boston about two this afternoon. He was tired. I don't think I've ever seen Lambertson so tired. It was more than just exhaustion, too. Maybe anger, frustration? I couldn't be sure. It seemed more like defeat than anything else, and he went straight from the copter to his office without even stopping off at the lab at all. It's good to have him back, though. Not that I haven't had a nice enough rest. 
With Lambertson gone, Dakin took over the reins for the week, but Dakin doesn't really count, poor man. It's such a temptation to twist him up and get him all confused that I didn't do any real work all week. With Lambertson back, I'll have to get down to the grind again, but I'm still glad he's here. I never thought I'd miss him so for such a short time away. But I wish he'd gotten a rest, if he ever rests, and I wish I knew why he went to Boston in the first place. Certainly he didn't want to go. I wanted to read him and find out, but I don't think I'm supposed to know yet. Lambertson didn't want to talk. He didn't even tell me he was back, even though he knew I'd catch him five miles down the road. I can do that now with Lambertson. Distance doesn't seem to make so much difference any more if I just ignore it. So all I got was bits and snatches on the surface of his mind. Something about me and Dr. Custer and a nasty little man called Aaron's or Barron's or something. I've heard of him somewhere, but I can't pin it down right now. I'll have to dig that out later, I guess. But if he saw Dr. Custer, why doesn't he tell me about it? Wednesday, 17th May. It was Aaron's that he saw in Boston. And now I'm sure that something's going wrong. I know that man. I remember him from a long time ago, back when I was still at Bairdsley, long before I came here to the study center. He was the consulting psychiatrist, and I don't think I could ever forget him even if I tried. That's why I'm sure something very unpleasant is going on. Lambertson saw Dr. Custer, too, but the directors sent him to Boston because Aarons wanted to talk to him. I wasn't supposed to know anything about it, but Lambertson came down to dinner last night. He wouldn't even look at me, the skunk. I fixed him. I told him I was going to peek, and then I read him in a flash before he could shift his mind to Boston traffic or something. He knows I can't stand traffic. I only picked up a little, but it was enough. There was something very unpleasant that Aarons had said that I couldn't quite get. They were in his office. Lambertson had said, I don't think she's ready for it, and I'd never try to talk her into it at this point. Why can't you people get it through your heads that she's a child, and a human being, not some kind of laboratory animal? That's been the trouble all along. Everybody has been so eager to grab, and nobody has given her a wretched thing in return. Aarons was smooth, very sad and reproachful. I got a clear picture of him, short, balding, mean little eyes in a smug, self-righteous little face. Michael, after all, she's twenty-three years old. She's certainly out of diapers by now. But she's only had two years of training aimed at teaching her anything. Well, there's no reason that that should stop, is there? Be reasonable, Michael. We certainly agree that you've done a wonderful job with the girl, and naturally you're sensitive about others working with her. But when you consider that public taxes are footing the bill... I'm sensitive about others exploiting her, that's all. I tell you I won't push her, and I wouldn't let her come up here even if she agreed to do it. She shouldn't be tampered with for another year or two at least. Lambertson was angry and bitter. Now, three days later, he was still angry. And you're certain that your concern is entirely professional? Whatever Aaron's meant, it wasn't nice. Lambertson caught it, and oh my! Chart slapped down on the table, door slamming, swearing from mild patient Lambertson. Can you imagine? And then later, no more anger, just disgust and defeat. That was what hit me when he came back yesterday. He couldn't hide it, no matter how he tried. Well, no wonder he was tired. I remember Aaron's all right. He wasn't so interested in me back in those days. Wild one, he called me. 
We haven't the time or the people to handle anything like this in a public institution. We have to handle her the way we'd handle any other defective. She may be a plus defective, instead of a minus defective, but she's as crippled as if she were deaf and blind. Good old errands. That was years ago, when I was barely thirteen. Before Dr. Custer got interested and started ophthalmoscoping me and testing me, before I'd even heard of Lambertson or the study center. For that matter, before anybody had done anything but feed me and treat me like some kind of peculiar animal or something. Well, I'm glad it was Lambertson that went to Boston and not me, for Aaron's sake. And if Aaron's tries to come down here to work with me, he's going to be wasting his time, because I'll lead him all around Robin Hood's barn and get him so confused he'll wish he'd stayed home. But I can't help but wonder just the same. Am I a cripple, like Aaron said? Does being sci-high mean that? I don't think so, but what does Lambertson think? Sometimes when I try to read Lambertson, I'm the one that gets confused. I wish I could tell what he really thinks. Wednesday night. I asked Lambertson tonight what Dr. Custer had said. He wants to see you next week, he told me. But, Amy, he didn't make any promises. He wasn't even hopeful. But his letter! He said the studies showed that there wasn't any anatomical defect. Lambertson leaned back and lit his pipe, shaking his head at me. He's aged ten years this past week. Everybody thinks so. He's lost weight, and he looks as if he hasn't slept at all. Custer's afraid that it isn't a question of anatomy, Amy. But what is it, then, for heaven's sake? He doesn't know. He says it's not very scientific, but it may just be that what you don't use, you lose. Oh, but that's silly! I chewed my lip. Granted. But he thinks that there's a chance? Of course there's a chance, and you know he'll do everything he can. It's just that neither of us wants you to get your hopes up. It wasn't much, but it was something. Lambertson looked so beat. I didn't have the heart to ask him what Aaron's wanted, even though I know he'd like to get it off his chest. Maybe tomorrow will be better. I spent the day with Charlie Dakin in the lab and did a little work for a change. I've been disgustingly lazy, and poor Charlie thinks it's all his fault. Charlie reads like twenty-point type ninety percent of the time, and I'm afraid he knows it. I can tell just exactly when he stops paying attention to business and starts paying attention to me, and then all of a sudden he realizes I'm reading him and it flusters him for the rest of the day. I wonder why. Does he really think I'm shocked, or surprised, or insulted? Poor Charlie. I guess I must be good enough looking. I can read it from almost every fellow that comes near me. I wonder why. I mean, why me and not Marjorie over in the main office? She's a sweet girl, but she never gets a second look from the guys. There must be some fine differential point I'm missing somewhere, but I don't think I'll ever understand it. I'm not going to press Lambertson, but I hope he opens up tomorrow. He's got me scared silly by now. He has a lot of authority around here, but other people are paying the bills, and when he's frightened about something, it can't help but frighten me. Thursday, 18th May. We went back to reaction testing in the lab with Lambertson today. That study is almost finished, as much as anything I work on is ever finished, which isn't very much. This test had two goals, to clock my stimulus response pattern in comparison to normals, and to find out just exactly when I pick up any given thought signal from the person I'm reading. It isn't a matter of developing speed. I'm already so fast to respond that it doesn't mean too much from anybody else's standpoint, and I certainly don't need any training there. But where along the line do I pick up a thought impulse? 
Do I catch it at its inception? Do I pick up the thought formulation or just the final crystallized pattern? Lambertson thinks I'm with it right from the start, and that some training in those lines would be worth my time. Of course, we didn't find out, not even with the ingenious little random firing device that Dakin designed for the study. With this gadget, neither Lambertson nor I know what impulse the box is going to throw at him. He just throws a switch, and it starts coming. He catches it, reacts, I catch it from him and react, and we compare reaction times. This afternoon it had us driving up a hill and sent a ten-ton truck rolling down on us out of control. I had my flasher on two seconds before Lambertson did, of course, but our reaction times are standardized, so when we corrected for my extra speed, we knew that I must have caught the impulse about 0.07 seconds after he did. Crude, of course, not nearly fast enough, and we can't reproduce on a stable basis. Lambertson says that's as close as we can get without cortical probes, and that's where I put my foot down. I may have a gold mine in this head of mine, but nobody is going to burr holes through my skull in order to tap it, not for a while yet. That's unfair, of course, because it sounds as if Lambertson were trying to force me into something, and he isn't. I've read him about that, and I know he wouldn't allow it. Let's learn everything else we can learn without it first, he says. Later, if you want to go along with it, maybe, but right now you're not competent to decide for yourself. He may be right, but why not? Why does he keep acting as if I'm a child? Am I really? With everything, and I mean everything, coming into my mind for the past twenty-three years, haven't I learned enough to make decisions for myself? Lambertson says, of course, everything has been coming up. It's just that I don't know what to do with it all. But somewhere along the line I have to reach a maturation point of some kind. It scares me sometimes, because I can't find an answer to it, and the answer might be perfectly horrible. I don't know where it may end. What's worse, I don't know what point it has reached right now. How much difference is there between my mind and Lambertson's? I'm sigh-high, and he isn't, granted. But is there more to it than that? People like Aaron's think so. They think it's a difference between human function and something else. And that scares me, because it just isn't true. I'm as human as anybody else, but somehow it seems that I'm the one who has to prove it. I wonder if I ever will. That's why Dr. Custer has to help me. Everything hangs on that. I'm to go up to Boston next week for final studies and testing. If Dr. Custer can do something, what a difference that will make. Maybe then I could get out of this whole frightening mess, put it behind me, and forget about it. With just the sigh alone, I don't think I ever can. Friday, 19th May. Today, Lambertson broke down and told me what it was that Aarons had been proposing. It was worse than I thought it would be. The man had hit on the one thing I'd been afraid of for so long. He wants you to work against normals, Lambertson said. He's swallowed the latency hypothesis whole. He thinks that everybody must have a latent psi potential, and that all that is needed to drag it into the open is a powerful stimulus from someone with full-blown psi powers. Well, I said, do you think so? Who knows? Lambertson slammed his pencil down on the desk angrily. No, I don't think so, but what does that mean? Not a thing. It certainly doesn't mean I'm right. Nobody knows the answer, not me, nor Aaron's, nor anybody, and Aaron's wants to use you to find out. I nodded slowly. I see. So I'm to be used as a sort of refined electrical stimulator, I said. Well, I guess you know what you can tell Aaron's. He was silent, and I couldn't read him. Then he looked up. Amy, I'm not sure we can tell him that. I stared at him. You mean you think he could force me? 
He says you're a public charge, that as long as you have to be supported and cared for, they have the right to use your faculties. He's right on the first point. You are a public charge. You have to be sheltered and protected. If you wandered so much as a mile outside these walls, you'd never survive, and you know it. I sat stunned. But Dr. Custer... Dr. Custer is trying to help, but he hasn't succeeded so far. If he can, then it will be a different story. But I can't stall much longer, Amy. Aaron's has a powerful argument. You're sci-high. You're the first full-fledged, wide-open, freewheeling sci-high that's ever appeared in human history. The first. Others in the past have shown potential, maybe, but nothing they could ever learn to control. You've got control. You're fully developed. You're here, and you're the only one there is. So I happen to be unlucky, I snapped. My genes got mixed up. That's not true, and you know it, Lambertson said. We know your chromosomes better than your face. They're the same as anyone else's. There's no gene difference, none at all. When you're gone, you'll be gone, and there's no reason to think that your children will have any more psi potential than Charlie Dakin has. Something was building up in me then that I couldn't control any longer. You think I should go along with errands, I said dully. He hesitated. I'm afraid you're going to have to sooner or later. Aaron's has some latents up in Boston. He's certain that they're latents. He's talked to the directors down here. He's convinced them that you could work with his people, draw them out. You could open the door to a whole new world for human beings. I lost my temper then. It wasn't just Aaron's or Lambertson or Dakin or any of the others. It was all of them, dozens of them, compounded year upon year upon year. Now listen to me for a minute, I said. Have any of you ever considered what I wanted in this thing? Ever? Have any of you given that one single thought, just once, one time when you were so sick of thinking great thoughts for humanity, that you let another thought leak through? Have you ever thought about what kind of a shuffle I've had since all this started? Well, you'd better think about it. Right now. Amy, you know I don't want to push you. Listen to me, Lambertson. My folks got rid of me fast when they found out about me. Did you know that? They hated me because I scared them. It didn't hurt me too much because I thought I knew why they hated me. I could understand it. And I went off to Bairdsley without even crying. They were going to come see me every week, but do you know how often they managed to make it? Not once after I was off their hands. And then at Bairdsley, Aaron's examined me and decided that I was a cripple. He didn't know anything about me then, but he thought Psy was a defect, and that was as far as it went. I did what Aaron's wanted me to do at Bairdsley, never what I wanted, just what they wanted, years and years of what they wanted, and then you came along, and I came to the study center and did what you wanted. It hurt him, and I knew it. I guess that was what I wanted, to hurt him and to hurt everybody. He was shaking his head, staring at me. Amy, be fair. I've tried. You know how hard I've tried. Tried what? To train me? Yes, but why? To give me better use of my psi faculties? Yes, but why? Did you do it for me? Is that really why you did it? Or was that just another phony front like all the rest of them in order to use me, to make me a little more valuable to have around? He slapped my face so hard it jolted me. I could feel the awful pain and hurt in his mind as he stared at me, and I sensed the stinging in his palm that matched the burning in my cheek. And then something fell away in his mind, and I saw something I had never seen before. He loved me, that man. Incredible, isn't it? He loved me. Me, who couldn't call him anything but Lambertson, who couldn't imagine calling him Michael, to say nothing of Mike, just Lambertson who did this or Lambertson who thought that. 
but he could never tell me. He had decided that. I was too helpless. I needed him too much. I needed love, but not the kind of love Lambertson wanted to give. So that kind of love had to be hidden, concealed, suppressed. I needed the deepest imaginable understanding, but it had to be utterly unselfish understanding. Anything else would be taking advantage of me, so a barrier had to be built, a barrier that I should never penetrate, and that he should never be tempted to break down. Lambertson had done that, for me. It was all there, suddenly, so overwhelming, it made me gasp from the impact. I wanted to throw my arms around him. Instead, I sat down in the chair, shaking my head helplessly. I hated myself then. I had hated myself before, but never like this. If I could only go somewhere, I said, some place where nobody knew me, where I could just live by myself for a while and shut the doors and shut out the thoughts and pretend for a while, just pretend that I'm perfectly normal. I wish you could, Lambertson said, but you can't, you know that, not unless Custer can really help. We sat there for a while. Then I said, Let Aaron's come down. Let him bring anybody he wants with him. I'll do what he wants, until I see Custer. That hurt, too. But it was different. It hurt both of us together, not separately any more. And somehow it didn't hurt so much that way. Monday, 22nd May Aaron's drove down from Boston this morning with a girl named Mary Bolton, and we went to work. I think I'm beginning to understand how a dog can tell when someone wants to kick him and doesn't quite dare. I could feel the back of my neck prickle when that man walked into the conference room. I was hoping he might have changed since the last time I saw him. He hadn't, but I had. I wasn't afraid of him any more, just awfully tired of him after he'd been here about ten minutes. But that girl! I wonder what sort of story he told her. She couldn't have been more than sixteen, and she was terrorized. At first I thought it was errands she was afraid of, but that wasn't so. It was me. It took us all morning just to get around that. The poor girl could hardly make herself talk. She was shaking all over when they arrived. We took a walk around the grounds alone, and I read her bit by bit, a feeler here, a planted suggestion there, just getting her used to the idea and trying to reassure her. After a while she was smiling. She thought the lagoon was lovely, and by the time we got back to the main building she was laughing, talking about herself, beginning to relax. Then I gave her a full blast, quickly, only a moment or two. Don't, Don't be, be afraid. afraid. I, I hate him, him yes, yes, but I, I won't hurt, hurt you for anything. anything. Let, Let me come, come in. in. Don't, Don't fight, fight me. We've, We've got, got to work, work as a team. team. It shook her. She turned white and almost passed out for a moment. Then she nodded slowly. I see, she said. It feels as if it's way inside deep inside. That's right. It won't hurt, I promise. She nodded again. Let's go back now. I think I'm ready to try. We went to work. I was as blind as she was at first. There was nothing there at first, not even a flicker of brightness. Then, probing deeper, something responded. Only a hint, a suggestion of something powerful, deep and hidden. But where? What was her strength? Where was she weak? I couldn't tell. We started on dice, crude of course, but as good a tool as any. Dice are no good for measuring anything, but that was why I was there. I was the measuring instrument. The dice were only reactors, sensitive enough, two balsam cubes, tossed from a box with only gravity to work against. I showed her first, 
picked up her mind as the dice popped out, led her through it. Take, Take one, one at a time, time. The, the red, red one, one first, first. work on it, see? Now, now we, we try, try both, once more. more. Watch, Watch it, all right now. She sat frozen in the chair. She was trying. The sweat stood out on her forehead. Aaron sat tense, smoking, his fingers twitching as he watched the red and green cubes bounce on the white backdrop. Lambertson watched too, but his eyes were on the girl, not on the cubes. It was hard work. Bit by bit she began to grab. Whatever I had felt in her mind seemed to leap up. I probed her, amplifying it, trying to draw it out. It was like wading through knee-deep mud, sticky, sluggish, resisting. I could feel her excitement growing, and bit by bit I released my grip, easing her out, baiting her. All right, I said, that's enough. She turned to me, wide-eyed. I, I did it. Aaron's was on his feet, breathing heavily. It worked? It worked. Not very well, but it's there. All she needs is time and help and patience. But it worked, Lambertson. Do you know what that means? It means I was right. It means others can have it, just like she has it. He rubbed his hands together. We can arrange a full-time lab for it, and work on three or four latents simultaneously. It's a wide-open door, Michael. Can't you see what it means? Lambertson nodded and gave me a long look. Yes, I think I do. I'll start arrangements tomorrow. Not tomorrow. You'll have to wait until next week. Why? Because Amy would prefer to wait, that's why. Aarons looked at him and then at me, peevishly. Finally he shrugged, if you insist. We'll talk about it next week, I said. I was so tired I could hardly look up at him. I stood up and smiled at my girl. Poor kid, I thought. So excited and eager about it now, and not one idea in the world of what she was walking into. Certainly Aarons would never be able to tell her. Later, when they were gone, Lambertson and I walked down towards the lagoon. It was a lovely, cool evening. The ducks were down at the water's edge. Every year there was a mother duck herding a line of ducklings down the shore and into the water. They never seemed to go where she wanted them to, and she would fuss and chatter, waddling back time and again to prod the reluctant ones out into the pool. We stood by the water's edge in silence for a long time. Then Lambertson kissed me. It was the first time he had ever done that. "'We could go away,' I whispered in his ear. "'We could run out on errands in the study center, and everyone just go away somewhere.' He shook his head slowly. "'Amy, don't.' "'We could. I'll see Dr. Custer, and he'll tell me he can help. I know he will. I won't need the study center any more, or any other place, or anybody but you.' He didn't answer, and I knew there wasn't anything he could answer. Not then. Friday, 26th May. Yesterday we went to Boston to see Dr. Custer, and now it looks as if it's all over. Now even I can't pretend that there's anything more to be done. Next week Aarons will come down, and I'll go to work with him just the way he has it planned. He thinks we have three years of work ahead of us before anything can be published, before he can really be sure we have brought a latent into full use of his psi potential. Maybe so, I don't know. Maybe in three years I'll find some way to make myself care one way or the other. But I'll do it, anyway, because there's nothing else to do. There was no anatomical defect. Dr. Custer was right about that. The eyes are perfect, beautiful gray eyes, he says, and the optic nerves and auditory nerves are perfectly functional. The defect isn't there. It's deeper, too deep ever to change it. 
what you no longer use, you lose, was what he said, apologizing because he couldn't explain it any better. It's like a price tag, perhaps. Long ago, before I knew anything at all, the sigh was so strong it started compensating, bringing in more and more from other minds, such a wealth of rich, clear, interpreted, visual and auditory impressions, that there was never any need for my own. And because of that, certain hookups never got hooked up. That's only a theory, of course, but there isn't any other way to explain it. But am I wrong to hate it? More than anything else in the world, I want to see Lambertson, see him smile and light his pipe, hear him laugh. I want to know what color really is, what music really sounds like, unfiltered through somebody else's ears. I want to see a sunset just once. Just once I want to see that mother duck take her ducklings down to the water. But I never will. Instead, I see and hear things nobody else can. And the fact that I am stone blind and stone deaf shouldn't make any difference. After all, I've always been that way. Maybe next week I'll ask Aarons what he thinks about it. It should be interesting to hear what he says. End of Second Sight by Alan Edward Norse. Recording by Jody Krangle. www.voiceoversandvocals.com Solomon's Orbit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anton Epp. Solomon's Orbit by William Carroll. Quote, there will sooner or later be problems of space junk and the right to dump in space, but not like this. End quote. Comrades, said the senior technician, notice the clear view of North America. From here we watch everything, rivers, towns, almost the people, and see our upper lens shows the dark spot of a meteor in space. Comrades, the meteor gets closer. It's going to pass close to our wondrous machine. Comrades, comrades, turn to my channel. It is no meteor. It is a square. You cursed Americans have sent up a house. Comrades, an ancient automobile is flying toward our space machine. Comrades, it's going to... The picture is gone. Moscow reported the conversation verbatim to prove their space vehicle was knocked from the sky by a capitalistic plot. Motion pictures clearly showed an American automobile coming toward the Russian satellite. Russian astronomers, ordered to seek other strange orbiting devices, reported, We've observed cars for weeks, have been exiling technicians and photographers to Siberia for making jokes of Soviet science. If television proves ancient automobiles are orbiting the world, Americans are caught in obvious attempt to ridicule our efforts to probe mysteries of space. Confusion was also undermining American scientific study of the heavens. At Mount Palomar, the busy 200-inch telescope was photographing a strange new object, but plates returned from the laboratory caused astronomers to explode angrily. In full glory, the photograph showed a tiny image of an ancient car. This first development only affected two photographers at Mount Palomar. They were fired for playing practical jokes on the astronomers. Additional exposures of other newfound objects were made. Again, the plates were returned, this time with three little old cars parading proudly across the heavens as though they truly belonged among the stars. The night the Russian protest crossed trails with the Palomar report, Washington looked like a kid with chicken pox, as dozens of spotty, yellow windows 
marked midnight meetings of the nation's greatest minds. The military denied responsibility for cars older than 1942. Civil aviation proved they had no projects involving motor vehicles. Central Intelligence swore in their classification manual they were not dropping junk over Cuba in an attempt to hit Castro. Disgusted, the President established a civilian commission which soon located three more reports. Two were from flyers. The pilot of Flight 26, New York to Los Angeles, had two weeks before reported a strange object rising through Southern California about 10 the evening of April 3rd. A week after this report, a private pilot on his way from Las Vegas claimed to see an old car flying over Los Angeles. His statement was ignored, as he was arrested later for trying to drink himself silly because no one believed his story. Fortunately, at the appropriate times both planes claimed sighting unknown objects, radar at Los Angeles International recorded something rising from Earth's surface into the stratosphere. Within hours after the three reports met, in the President's Commission's office, mobile radar was spotted on Southern California hilltops in 24-hour watches for unscheduled flights not involving aircraft. Number 7, stationed in the Mount Wilson Television Tower parking lot, caught one first. Hey, fellers, came his excited voice. Check one, two, four degrees, vector six, two, now. Rising. One, two, four degrees, vector six, six, rising. Nine and four caught it moments later. Then three. Army long-range radar picked it up. Okay, we're on it. It's still rising, leaving atmosphere and gone. Anyone else catch it? Negative responses came from all but seven, nine, and four. So well spread were they that within minutes headquarters had laid four lines over Southern California. They crossed where the unsuspecting community of Fullerton was more or less sound asleep, totally unaware of the making of history in its backyard. The history of what astronomers call Solomon's orbit had its beginning about three months ago. Solomon, who couldn't remember his first name, was warming tired bones in the sun in front of his auto-wrecking yard a mile south of Fullerton. Though sitting, he was propped against the office, a tin shed decorated like a Christmas tree with hundreds of hubcaps dangling from sagging wooden rafters. The back door opened on two acres of what Solomon happily agreed was the finest junk in all California. Fords on the left, Chevys on the right, and across the sagging back fence a collection of honorable sedans whose makers left the business world years ago. They were known as Solomon's Classics. The bright sun had Solomon's tiny eyes burrowed under a shaggy brow which, added to an Einstein-like shock of white hair, gave him the appearance of a professor on sabbatical. Eyes closed, Solomon was fondling favorite memories, when as a lad he repaired steam tractors and followed wheat across central plains of the United States. Happiness faded as the reverie was broken by spraying gravel signaling the arrival of a customer's car. "'There's Uncle Solomon, Dad!' a boy's voice was saying. He gives us kids good deals on hot rod parts. You just gotta take a look at his old cars, cause if you want a classic, Uncle Solomon would make you a good deal, too. I just know he would. Sure, son. Let's go in and see what he's got, replied a man's voice. As Solomon opened his eyes, the two popped into reality. Heaving himself out of the sports car bucket seat that was his office chair, Solomon stood, awaiting approach of the pair. Mr. Solomon, Georgia here tells me you have some fine old cars for sale. Sure have, sure have. They're in back. Come along, I'll show you the shortcuts. Without waiting for a reply, Solomon started, head bent, white hair blowing, through the office, out the back door, and down passages hardly wide enough for a boy, let alone a man. 
he disappeared around a hearse and surfaced on the other side of a convertible, leading the boy and his father a chase that was more of a guided tour of Solomon's yard than a short cart. Yes, sir, here they are, announced Solomon over his shoulder. Stepping aside, he made room for the boy and his father to pass between a couple of four tutors. Three pairs of eyes, one young, one old, the other tired, were faced by two rows of hulks, proud in the silent agony of their fate. Sold, resold, and sold again, used until exhaustion set in, they reached Solomon's for a last brave stand. No matter what beauties they were to Solomon's prejudiced eyes, missing fenders, rusted body panels, broken wheels, and rotted woodwork bespoke the utter impossibility of restoration. See, Dad, aren't they great? Georgie gleefully asked. He could just imagine shaking the guys at school with the old Packard after Dad restored it. Are you kidding? Georgie's dad exploded. Those wrecks aren't good for anything but shooting at the moon. Let's go. Not another word did he say. Heading back to the car, parked outside Solomon's office, his footsteps were echoed by those of a crestfallen boy. Solomon, a figure of lonely dejection in the gloom, overshadowing his unloved cars, was troubled with smog causing his eyes to water as tired feet aimlessly found their way back to his seat in the sun. That night, to take his mind off worrisome old cars, Solomon began reading the previous Sunday's newspaper. There were pictures of moonshots, rockets, and astronauts, which started Solomon to thinking, So, my classics are good only for shooting at the moon. This thing called an ion engine, which creates a force field to move satellites, seems like a lot of equipment. Could do it easier with one of my old engines, I bet. As Solomon told the people in Washington several months later, he was only resting his eyes, thinking about shop manuals and parts in the back yard, when suddenly he figured there was an easier way to build a satellite power plant. But as it was past his bedtime, he'd put one together tomorrow. It was late the next afternoon before Solomon had a chance to try his satellite power plant idea. Customers were gone, and he was free of interruption. The engine of his elderly moorland tow truck was brought to life by Solomon, almost hidden behind the huge wooden steering wheel. The truck lumbered carefully down rows of cars to an almost completely stripped wreck holding only a broken engine. In a few minutes, Solomon had the engine waving behind the truck while he reversed to a clear space near the center of his yard. Once the broken engine was blocked upright on the ground, Solomon backed his moorland out of the way, carried a tray of tools to the engine, and squatted in the dirt to work. First, the intake manifold came off and was bolted to the clutch housing so the carburetor mounting flange faced skyward. Solomon stopped for a minute to worry. If it works, he thought, when I get them near each other, it will go up on my face. Scanning the yard, he thought of fenders, doors, wheels, hubcaps, and that was it. A hubcap would do the trick. At his age, running was a senseless activity, but walking faster than usual, Solomon took a direct route to his office. From the ceiling of hubcaps, he selected a small cap from an old Chevy truck. Back at the engine, he punched a hole in the cap, through which he tied a length of strong twine. The cap was laid on the carburetor flange and stuck in place with painter's masking tape. He then bolted the exhaust manifold over the intake so the muffler connection barely touched the hubcap. Solomon stood up, kicked the manifolds with his heavy boots to make sure that they were solid, and grunted with satisfaction of a job well done. He moved his tray of tools away and trailed the hubcap twine behind the solid body of a big old Ford station wagon. He'd read of scientists in blockhouses when they shot rockets and was taking no chances. Excitement glistened Solomon's old eyes as what blood pressure there was rose a point or two with happy thoughts. If his idea worked, he would be free of the old cars, yet not destroy a single one. 
Squatting behind the station wagon to watch the engine, Solomon gingerly pulled the twine to eliminate slack. As it tightened, he tensed, braced himself with a free hand on the wagon's bumper, and taking a deep breath, jerked the cord. Tired legs failed, and Solomon slipped backward when the hubcap broke free of the tape and sailed through the air to clang against the wagon's fender. Lying on his back, struggling to rise, Solomon heard a slight swish, as though a whirlwind had come through the yard. The scent of airborne dust bit his nostrils as he struggled to his feet. Deep in the woods behind Solomon's yard, two boys were hunting crows. Eyes high, they scanned branches and horizons for game. Look, there goes one, the younger cried, as a large object majestically rose into the sky and rapidly disappeared into high clouds. Yup, maybe so, said the other, but it's flying too high for us. I must be a silly old man, Solomon thought, scanning the cleared space behind his tow truck where he remembered an engine. There was nothing there, and as Solomon now figured it, never had been. Heart heavy with belief in the temporary foolishness of age, Solomon went to the hubcap, glittering the sun where it lit after bouncing off the fender. It was untied from the string and in the tool tray before Solomon realized he'd not been daydreaming. In the cleared area were two old manifold gaskets, several rusty nuts, and dirt blown smooth in a wide circle around greasy blocks on which he'd propped the now-missing engine. That night was a whirlwind of excitement for Solomon. He had steak for dinner, then sat back to consider a future success. Once the classic cars were gone, he could use the space for more profitable Fords and Chevys. All he'd have to do would be bolt manifolds from spare engines on a different car every night, and he'd be rid of them. All he used was vacuum in the intake manifold, drawing pressure from the outlet side of the exhaust. The resulting automatic power flow raised anything they were attached to. Solomon couldn't help but think. The newspapers said scientists were losing rockets and space capsules so a few old cars could get lost in the clouds without hurting anything. Early the next morning, he towed the oldest hulk, an Essex, to the cleared space. Manifolds from junk engines were bolted to the wheels, but this time carburetor flanges were covered by wooden shingles because Solomon figured he couldn't afford to ruin four saleable hubcaps just to get rid of his old sedans. Each shingle was taped in place so they could be pulled off in unison with a strong pull on the twine. The tired Essex was pretty big, so Solomon waited until bedtime before stumbling through the dark to the launching pad in his yard. Light from kitchen matches helped collect the shingles cords as he crouched behind the Ford wagon. He held the cords in one calloused hand, a burning match in the other, so he could watch the Essex. Solomon tightened his fist, gave a quick tug to jerk all the shingles at the same time, and watched in excited satisfaction as the old sedan rose in the soft swish of midsummer air flowing through ancient curves of four rusty manifold assemblies. Day after day, only a mile from Fullerton, Solomon busied himself buying wrecked cars and selling usable parts. Each weekday night, Solomon never worked on Sunday, another old car from his back lot went silently heavenward with the aid of Solomon's unique combination of engine vacuum and exhaust pressure. His footsteps were light with accomplishment, as he thought, in four more days they'll all be gone. While the Fullerton radar net smoked innumerable cigarettes and cursed luck ruining the evening, Solomon scrambled two eggs, enjoyed his coffee, and relaxed with a newly found set of old 1954 Buick shop manuals. As usual, when the clock neared ten, he closed his manuals and let himself out the back door. City lights, reflected in low clouds, brightened the way Solomon knew well. He was soon kneeling behind the Ford wagon without having stumbled once. Only two kitchen matches were needed to collect the cords from a big Packard, handsome in the warmth of a moonless summer night. With a faint, God bless you, 
Solomon pulled the shingles and watched his massive hulk rise and disappear into orbit with his other orphans. If you'd been able to see it all, you'd have worried. The full circle of radar and communications crews around Fullerton had acted as though the whole town were going to pussyfoot away at sundown. Nine was hidden in a curious farmer's orange grove. Seven was tucked between station wagons in the back row of a used car lot. Four was assigned the loading dock of a meat-packing plant, but the night watchman wouldn't allow them to stay. They moved across the street behind a fire station. Three was too big to hide, so it opened for business inside the National Guard armory. They all caught the Packard's takeoff. Degree lines from the four stations around Fullerton were crossed on the map long before Solomon reached his back door. By the time bedroom lights were out and covers under his bristly chin, a task force of quiet men was speeding on its way to surround four blocks of country land, including a chicken ranch, Solomon's junkyard, and a small frame house. Dogs stirred, yapping at sudden activity they alone knew of, then nose to tail returned to sleep when threats of intrusion failed to materialize. The sun was barely up when the chicken farmer was stopped a block from his house. Highway patrolmen slowly inspected his truck from front to back, while three cars full of civilians by the side of the road watched every move. Finding nothing unusual, the patrolman reported to the first civilian car, then returned to wave the farmer on his way. When the widow teacher from the frame house started for school, she too was stopped. After cursory inspection, the patrolman passed her on. Two of the three accounted for. What of the third? Quietly a cavalcade formed converged in Solomon's front yard and parked facing the road, ready for quick departure. Some dozen civilians, muddied shoes and trousers, circling the junkyard, taking station so they could watch all approaches. Once they were in position, a highway patrolman and two civilians went to Solomon's door. His last cup of coffee was almost gone as Solomon heard the noise of their shoes, followed by knuckles thumping his front door. Wondering who could be in such a hurry so early in the morning, he pulled on boots and buttoned a denim jacket as he went to answer. Hello, said Solomon to the patrolman while opening the door. Why do you bother me so early? You know I only buy cars from owners. No, Mr. Solomon, we're not worried about your car buying. This man from Washington wants to ask you a few questions. Sure, come in. The questions were odd. Do you have explosives here? Can you weld metal tanks? What is your education? Were you ever an engineer? What were you doing last night? To these, and bewildering others, Solomon told the truth. He had no explosives. He couldn't weld, didn't finish school, and was here, in bed, all night. Then they wanted to see his cars. Through the back door, so he'd not have to open the office, Solomon led the three men into his yard. Once inside, and without asking permission, they began searching like a hungry hound trailing a fat rabbit. Solomon's eyes, blinking in the glare of early morning sun, watched invasion of his privacy. What they want, he wondered. He'd broken no laws in all the years he'd been in the United States. For what did they bother a reckon yard? he asked himself. His depressing thoughts were rudely shattered by a hail from the larger civilian, standing at the back of Solomon's yard. There, three old cars stood in an isolated row. Solomon, come here a moment, he shouted. Solomon trudged back, followed by the short civilian and the patrolman who left their curious searching to follow Solomon's lead. When he neared, the tall stranger asked, I see where weeds grew under other cars which, from the tracks, have been moved out in the past few weeks. How many did you have? Twenty. But these are all I have left, Solomon eagerly replied, hoping at last he'd a customer for the best of his old cars. They make classic cars if you take the time to fix them up. That one, the Huntmobile's the last— Who bought the others? The big man interrupted. No, no one, quavered Solomon, terror gripping his throat with a nervous hand. 
Had he done wrong to send cars into the sky? Everyone else was sending things up. Newspapers said Russians and Americans were racing to send things into the air. What had he done that was wrong? Surely there were no laws he'd broken. Wasn't the air free, like the seas? People dumped things into the ocean. Then where do they go? snapped his questioner. Up there, pointed Solomon. I needed space. They were too good to cut up. No one would buy them, so I sent them up. The newspapers. You did what? I sent them up into the sky, quavered Solomon. So this is what he did wrong. Would they lock him up? What would happen to his cars and his business? How did you... No. Wait a minute. Don't say a word. Officer, go and tell my men to prevent anyone from approaching or leaving this place. The patrolman almost saluted, thought better of it, then left grumbling about being left out of what must be something big. Solomon told the civilians of matching vacuum and intake manifolds to pressure from exhaust manifolds, a logical way to make an engine that would run on pressure, like satellite engines he'd read about in newspapers. It worked on a cracked engine block, so he'd used scrap manifolds to get rid of old cars no one would buy. It hadn't hurt anything, had it? Well, no, it hadn't, but as you can imagine, things happened rather fast. They let Solomon get clean denim and his razor, then, without a goodbye your leave, hustled him to the Ontario airport, where an unmarked jet flew him to Washington and a hurriedly arranged meeting with the President. They left guards posted inside the fence of Solomon's yard, so they'll cause no attention while protecting his property. A rugged individual sits in the office and tells buyers and sellers alike that he is Solomon's nephew. The old man had to take a trip in a hurry. Because he knows nothing of the business, they'll have to wait until Solomon returns. Where's Solomon now? Newspaper stories have him in Nevada, showing the Air Force how to build gigantic intake and exhaust manifolds which the Strategic Air Command is planning to attach to a stratospheric decompression test chamber. They figure if they can throw it into the sky, they can move anything up to what astronomers now call Solomon's orbit, where, at last count, 16 of the 17 cars are still merrily circling the Earth. As you know, one recently hit the Russian television satellite. The Russians... We're told they're still burning their fingers trying to orbit a car. They can't figure out how to control vacuum and pressure from the manifolds. Solomon didn't tell many people about the shingles he uses for control panels, and the Russians think control is somehow related to kitchen matches a newspaper reporter found scattered behind a station wagon in Solomon's junkyard. End of Solomon's Orbit by William Carroll The Troubadour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corrie Samuel. The Troubadour by Robert Augustine Ward Lowndes. Writing as Peter Michael Sherman. So far as parties go, Jocelyn's were no duller than any others. I went to this one mainly to listen to Paul Kutrov and Frank Alva bait each other, which is usually more entertaining than most double features. Kutrov adheres to the onward and upward school of linear progress, while Alva is more or less of a Spenglerian, more when he goes along by himself, less when you try to pin him down to it. And since the subject of tonight's revelations would be the pre-Mohammed Arabian culture, I'd find Alva inclined toward my side of the debate, which is strictly morphological and without any pious theories of progress. I'd completely forgotten that Jocelyn had mentioned something about having a special attraction, a Mr. Phalis, 
who, she insisted, was a troubadour. I didn't comment, not wanting to spend a day with Jocelyn on the phone, exploring the province. The night wasn't too warm for August, and there were occasional gusts of air seeping through the layers of tobacco smoke that hovered over the assemblage. As usual, it was a heterogeneous crowd, which rapidly formed numerous islands of discourse. The trade winds carried salient germs of intelligence throughout the entire archipelago at times, and Jocelyn walked upon the water, scurrying from one body to another, sopping up the overflow of culture. She visited our atoll, where Kutrov's passionate exposition had already raised the mean temperature some degrees, but didn't stay long. Such debates didn't suggest any course of social or political action, and couldn't be trued in to any of her causes. My attention was wandering from the Kutrov Alva variations, for Bill had only been speaking for ten minutes, and could not be expected to arrive at any point whatsoever for at least another fifteen. From the east of us came apocalyptic figures of nuclear physics. From the west I heard the strains of Mondrian interwoven with Picasso. South of us, a post-mortem on the latest betrayal of this or that aspiration of the people. And to the north we heard the mysteries of eternality. It was while I was looking around, and letting these things roll over me, that I saw the stranger enter. Jocelyn immediately bounced up from a couch, leaving the crucial problem of atmosphere-poisoning via fission and or fusion bombs suspended, and made effusive noises. This, then, was the troubadour, Mr. Phalis. The main attraction was decidedly prepossessing. Tall, peculiarly graceful both in appearance and manner, dressed with an immaculateness that seemed excessive in this post-Bohemian circle. There was a decided musical quality to his speech, as he made polite comments upon being introduced to each of us, and an exactness in sentence structure, word choices, and enunciation that bespoke the foreigner. Jocelyn took him around, with the air of conducting a quick tour through a museum, then settled him momentarily with the music group, now in darkest Schoenenberg only partially illuminated by Wozzeck. I watched Phalis long enough to solidify an impression that he was at ease here, but not merely in this particular discussion. It was a case of his being simply at ease, period. Kutrov was watching him too, and I saw now that there would be a most likely permanent digression. Too bad. I'd had a feeling that when he came to his point it would have been a strong one. Hungarian, do you suppose? he asked. Alva examined the evidence. Phelis had high cheekbones, longish eyes, with large pupils. He was lean, without giving an impression of thinness. He had not taken off his gloves, and I wondered if he would come forth with a monocle. If he had, it would not have seemed an affectation. "'I wouldn't say Slavic,' Alva said. He started off on ethnology, and we toured the Near East again. I jumped into the brake when Kutrov was swallowing beer, and Alva lighting a cigarette, to observe that Phalis reminded me of some Egyptian portraits, although I couldn't set the period. "'If those eyes of his don't shine in the dark,' I added, "'they ought to.' A brief pause for appreciation, then Jocelyn was calling for all men's attention. She managed to get it in reasonably short order, took a deep breath, then dived into announcing that our special guest, Mr. Phalis, was going to deliver a song-cycle. Phelis arose, bowed slightly, then nodded to Mark Loring, who brought forth his oboe. These songs were not conceived or composed in the form I am presenting them, 
he said, but I believe that the arrangement I use is an effective one. I call this Song of the Last Men. He nodded again to Loring, and the performance began. His voice was affecting, and his artistry unmistakable, and there were overtones in his voice that gave an added eeriness to the weird music itself. The songs told of the feelings, the memories, and despair of a nearly extinct people, one which had achieved a great culture and a worldwide civilization. The singer knows that the civilization has been destroyed, that the people created by this culture and civilization are gone, the few survivors being pitiful fellaheen, unable to rebuild or bring forth a culture of their own. There is despair at the loss of the comforts the civilization they knew brought them, sorrow at their inability to share in its greatness, even in memory, and a resigned certainty that they are the last of the race, they will soon be gone, and no others shall arise after them. There was silence when Phalis finished, then discreet but firm applause, as if the audience felt that giving full rein to their approval would make an impious racket. Phalis seemed to sense this feeling, and smiled as he bowed. "'These are not songs of your people, are they?' asked Jocelyn. Phalis shook his head. "'Oh, no, they are far removed from us. I am merely an explorer of past cultures and civilizations, and I enjoy adapting such masterpieces of the past as I can find. This arrangement was made for you. I shall make a different one for my own people.' so that the sonic values of the music and the words agree with each other." Kutrov blinked, then asked him, "'Well, can you tell us something more about the people who created this cycle? It has a familiar ring to it, yet I cannot tie it in with any past culture I have heard of.' Jocelyn cut in with the regretful announcement that Mr. Phalis had another appointment, and called for a note of thanks to him for coming. More applause, this time unrestrained. Phalis smiled again, and swept his eyes around us, as if filled with some amusing secret. Then he said to Kutrov, "'You would find them quite understandable.' I wandered over to the window, in search of air, and noted that someone had indiscreetly left a comfortable chair vacant. I was near the door, so that I could hear Jocelyn say to Phalis, "'It was very moving. Why, I could almost feel that you were singing about us.' Phalis smiled again. That is as it should be. Of course, chimed in Loring, who'd come up to ask Phalis if he could have a copy of the score. That's the test of expert performance. The lights were dimmed again by the fog of tobacco smoke, and I could see the street quite clearly by moonlight. I decided I would watch Phalis, and see if his eyes did glow in the dark. I saw him go down the sidewalk, with that graceful stride of his, his hands in his pockets, but I couldn't see his eyes at all. Then a gust of wind tugged his hat, and, for an instant, I thought he'd have to go scrambling after it. But quick as a rapier thrust, a tail darted out from beneath his dress-coat, caught the hat, and set it back upon his head. End of the Troubadour by Robert Augustine Ward Lowndes This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
The Ultimate Experiment by Thornton DeKai Read by Nicodemus No living soul breathed upon the earth, only robots carrying on the last great order. They were all gone now, the masters, all dead, and their atoms scattered to the never-ceasing winds that swept the great chrysolite city towers in ever-increasing fury. That had been the last wish of each as he had passed away, dying from sheer old age. True, they had fought on as long as they could to save their kind from utter extinction, but the comet that had trailed its poisoning wake across space to leave behind it, upon Earth, a noxious lethal gas vapor, had done its work too well. No living soul breathed upon the Earth. No one lived here now but Chiron and his kind. And so, thought Chiron to himself, he might as well be a great, unthinking robot, able to do only one thing, instead of the mental giant he was. So obsessed had he become with the task he had set himself to do. Yet in spite of a great loneliness and a strong fear of a final frustration, he worked on with the others of his people, hardly stopping for anything except the very necessities needed to keep his big body working in perfect coordination. Tirelessly he worked, for the masters had bred, if that is the word to use, fatigue and the need for restoration out of his race long decades ago. Sometimes, though, he would stop his work when the great red dying sun began to fade into the west, and his round eyes would grow wistful as he looked out over the great city that stretched in towering minarets and lofty spires of purest crystal blue for miles on every side. A fairy city of rarest hue and beauty, a city for the gods, and the gods were dead. Chiron felt at such times the great loneliness that the last master must have known. They had been kind, the masters, and Chiron knew that his people, as they went about their eternal tasks of keeping the great city in perfect shape for the masters who no longer needed it, must miss them as he did. Never to hear their voices ringing, never to see them again gathered in groups to witness some game or to play amid the silver fountains and flowery gardens of the wondrous city, made him infinitely saddened. It would always be like this, unless... But thinking, dreaming, reminiscing would not bring it all back, for there was only one answer to still the longing. Work. The others worked and did not dream, but instead kept busy tending to the thousand and one tasks the master had set them to do, had left them doing when the last master perished. He too must remember the trust they had placed in his hands and fulfill it as best he could. From the time the great red eye of the sun opened itself in the east, until it disappeared in the blue haze beyond the chrysolite city, Chiron labored with his fellows. Then, at the appointed hour, the musical signals would peal forth their sweet, sad chimes, whispering good night to ears that would hear them no more, and all operations would halt for the night just as it had done when the masters were here to supervise it. Then when morning came, he would start once more trying, testing, experimenting with his chemicals and plastics, forever following labyrinth of knowledge, seeking for the great triumph that would make the work of the others of some real use. His hands molded the materials carefully, lovingly to a pattern that was set in his mind as a thing to cherish. Day by day, his experiments in their liquid baths took form under his careful modeling. He mixed his chemicals with the same loving touch, the same careful concentration and painstaking thoroughness 
studying often his notes and analysis charts. Everything must be just so, lest his experiment not turn out perfectly. He never became exasperated at a failure or a defect that proved to be the only reward for his faithful endeavors, but worked patiently on toward a goal that he knew would ultimately be his. Then one day, as the great red sun glowed like an immense red eye overhead, Chiron stepped back to admire his handiwork. In that instant, the entire wondrous city seemed to breathe a silent prayer as he stood transfixed by the sight before him. Then it went on as usual, hurrying noiselessly about its business. The surface cars, empty though they were, fled swiftly about, supported only by the rings of magnetic force that held them to their designated paths. The gravoships raised from the tower dromes to speed silently into the eye of the red sun that was dying. No one now, Chiron thought to himself as he studied his handiwork. Then he walked unhurriedly to the cabinet in the laboratory corner and took from it a pair of earphones resembling those of a long-forgotten radio set. Just as unhurriedly, though his mind was filled with turmoil and his being with excitement, he walked back and connected the earphones to the box upon his bench. The phones dangled into the liquid bath before him as he adjusted them to suit his requirements. Slowly he checked over every step of his experiments before he went further. Then, as he proved them for the last time, his hand went slowly to the small knife switch upon the box at his elbow. Next he threw into connection the larger switch upon his laboratory wall, bringing into his laboratory the broadcast power of the chrysolite city. The laboratory generators hummed softly, drowning out the quiet hum of the city outside. As they built up, sending tiny living electrical impulses over the wires like minute currents that come from the brain, Chiron sat breathless, his eyes intent. Closer to his work he bent, watching lovingly, fearful lest all might not be quite right. Then his eyes took on a brighter light as he began to see the reaction. He knew the messages that he had sent out were being received and coordinated into a unit that would stir and grow into intellect. Suddenly the machine flashed its little warning red light and automatically snapped off. Chiron twisted quickly in his seat and threw home the final switch. This, he knew, was the ultimate test. On the results of the flood of energy impulses that he had set in motion rested the fulfillment of his success or failure. He watched with slight misgivings. This had never been accomplished before. How could it possibly be a success now? Even the masters had never quite succeeded at this final test. How could he, only a servant? Yet it must work, for he had no desire in life but to make it work. Then suddenly he was on his feet, eyes wide. From the two long coffin-like liquid baths, there arose two perfect specimens of the Homo sapiens. Man and woman they were, and they blinked their eyes in the light of the noonday sun, raised themselves dripping from the baths of their creation, and stepped to the floor before Chiron. The man spoke, the woman remained silent. I am Adam too, he said, created by you, Chiron, from a formula they left in their image. I was created to be a master, and she whom you also have created is to be my wife. We shall mate, and the race of man shall be reborn through us and others whom I shall help you create. The man halted at the last declaration he intoned and walked smilingly toward the woman, who stepped into his open arms, returning his smile. Chiron smiled too, within his pumping heart. The words the man had intoned had been placed in his still pregnable mind by the teleteach phones and record that the last master had prepared 
before death had halted his experiments. The actions of the man toward the woman Chiron knew was caused by the natural constituents that went to form his chemical body and govern his humanness. He, Chiron, had created a living man and woman. The masters lived again because of him. They would sing and play and again people the magnificent chrysolite city because he loved them and had kept on until success had been his. But then why not such a turnabout? Hadn't they, the masters, created him a superb thinking robot? End of The Ultimate Experiment by Thornton DeKai Read by Nicodemus Untechnological Employment This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reader's Note This story takes the form of a volley of teletype messages between the United States Pacific Spaceport and the White House in Washington, D.C. TWX's Teletype Writer Exchange. Untechnological Employment, subtitled The Reaction Would Not Have Been So Deeply Bitter If Only It Hadn't Worked by E. M. Clinton, Jr. TWX White House to Colonel K. A. Brown, Commander, Pacific Spaceport. Congress pressure high. Investigation imminent. Must have full information why moon launches behind schedule. TWX Colonel K. A. Brown to White House. Unseasonably constant bad weather prevents launching for past three weeks. TWX White House to Brown PSP. What kind of bad weather? TWX Colonel K. A. Brown to White House. Fog. TWX White House to Brown PSP. Congress pressure greater. Bad publicity involved. Russians are launching on schedule. Why can't we? Something must be done. TWX Colonel K. A. Brown to White House. Still fogged in. TWX White House to Brown PSP. Chairman Senate Space Committee says fly this week or he will investigate. TWX Colonel K. A. Brown to White House. Sir, investigate. TWX White House to Colonel A. A. Newman, Commander, Pacific Spaceport. Expect you to act immediately solving previous administration problems. Re-launchings. TWX Colonel A. A. Newman to White House. Wish to advise, fog remains. Was clear for 13 minutes this a.m. Please instruct. TWX White House to Newman, PSP. Senate Space Committee under Senator Harry Washwater, Arizona, due Pacific Spaceport this Friday. TWX Colonel A. A. Newman to White House. Advise you, this office regards Washwater suggestion as not acceptable. TWX White House to Newman PSP. In confidence, Advise ancillary political considerations make it desirable you reevaluate Washwater recommendation. TWX Colonel A. A. Newman to White House. In confidence, ask what possible political considerations can apply here. TWX White House to Newman PSP. In confidence, 
high unemployment rate native americans in washwater constituency twx colonel b m dewar acting commander pacific spaceport to white house advise you colonel newman's death established as suicide twx white house to dewar psp regrets officially from this office now suggest reevaluation of washwater recommendation how is the weather twx colonel b m dewar to white house reevaluating weather still unspeakably bad was this place evaluated for weather before spaceport facilities built twx white house to dewar psp official position is change in japanese current anxious for your decision on washwater recommendation twx colonel b m dewar to white house respectfully deferred decision to your office twx white house to dewar psp emergency forces on way from arizona this a m per this office decision to follow washwater recommendation please keep hourly information coming to this office twx colonel b m dewar to white house dancing began at o four twenty pst every assistance being extended by this base twx colonel b m dewar to white house dancing still in progress chief blue sky declares repertoire of sun dances far from exhausted twx colonel b m dewar to white house Countdown completed. Launching successful. Visibility unlimited. Weather control personnel asking for overtime. Please advise and accept my resignation. End of Untechnological Employment by E. M. Clinton, Jr.